Germany Broadcasting, Germany Broadcasting, this is the voice of terror. Here, the tonal differences between actual and transcribed broadcasts. Using this test, I'm convinced that the voice of terror is undoubtedly recorded and played from a record. It proves that the voice of terror, the man himself, is not in Germany. He's here in England. Good evening, gentlemen. I knew your curiosity would be your undoing, Mr. Holmes. You were expecting me then? Yes. I had hoped that the entire council might have come. It would have been a pleasure to deal with all of them. episode 125 and i am rod barnett i'm troy gwen and tonight we have a third guest someone here for a very specific reason and that would be elizabeth or should we call you something else is elizabeth number three. Beth? should we call you number three <laughs> number three <laughs> third wheel number three <laughs> what what name would you i mean we do i do have an occasional guy on here who goes by a pseudonym completely so what do you want to be known as Oh, you can just call me Beth. 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 Beth is here for a very specific reason. It's because of the film that we are covering tonight. This is a kind of strange series within a series of our 1940s universal horror through line. This is the first of the 1940s universal Sherlock Holmes movies. The film in question is Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, sometimes just known as The Voice of Terror, which is a little strange, almost mm-hmm. as if it's like the voice of terror, colon, Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Don't know exactly mm-hmm. why, but mm-hmm. 1942, we are plowing our way through 1942, which has taken a while. There were a lot of movies. Universal, Universal was produced. very busy, very Ooh. busy that year. Yes. So uh, it, it's it's good stuff. It does start, uh, we, we should say we, we talked about this, this the last time, the fact that we did debate a good bit back, back and forth amongst ourselves about whether or not we should include the Sherlock Holmes films in this romp through mm. the universal horror films of the 40s. And the reason we decided to is that there are two or three, at the very least, of the Sherlock Holmes movies they produced, which are unabashed horror movies. They really fit beautifully within that whole strain of what was going on at Universal in this period of time. And it would be ridiculous to leave out those three, but then again, you're you're, you're like making a judgment call mm. And so I, we just decided we're going to stick with just plowing our way through mm. the titles as they came out, keeping on track with the Universal Horrors book that uh, Tom Weaver and his co-writers wrote way back when. Yeah, I think at some point in each of these shows, we'll probably will kind of more directly address how much of it 
or is would you makes it a horror film? Are there yeah. elements, you know? Or in this case, we'll be asking how much horror is there in terror? So, <laughs> well, I uh, just terror. <laughs> I, I don't. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say up front that uh, before we even get into a discussion of it, I don't. I don't really consider this to be a horror film. No. This is much more a. Well, this is a wartime propaganda film. Oh, first absolutely. and foremost, yeah. this is. You know, maybe it's like vying for first place in the descriptor of Sherlock Holmes film mm-hmm. or wartime propaganda films. Like, which one takes front no. seat? I don't really know. Mm-hmm. It seems to me a lot of the time the wartime propaganda element is driving the car. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I agree. It's done well enough. We'll get to some of the problems with that as we go along. It's very British patriotism. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's it, the fact that there's not somebody at the end <laughs> standing on a hillside in the distance waving a Union Jack over their head is a, really a bit of a surprise because they might as well be doing it for all the things that are being said at the time. Well, the version I watched it still has the uh, buy bonds thing at the end of it. Yes. Know, the yes. War, buy war bonds thing. So Now, there isn't, a, I had hoped that there would be a kind of commentary track on this, but there hasn't been a commentary commentary track produced for this film that I can no. find which no. is a shame. Yeah. The sets that we the the set that I, you know, that collected them that I have has several commentaries. Uh the two of there were for, on the first two Sherlock Holmes films which I went ahead and watched the uh the oh. the 20th Century Fox ones. Uh, just because I, I wanted to get again, kind of start the series from the first for myself, you know. Just they're quite, get they're quite good. They're very but good. Both of those did have audio commentary, so I was disappointed that Voice of Terror does not. But I think that there's at least a few of the ones we will be doing that that do have commentaries for them. I yeah. think so. I think a couple of the really juicy horror tinged mm-hmm. ones do, and I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that because I know I've listened to a couple of them years ago, mm-hmm. but I haven't listened to them since. So that will be that will be instructive, and I'm hoping that we get to glean a little bit more information about those films as we go along. Um, Troy. Yes. You probably had never seen this film from beginning to end until this go-round. Am I wrong? Uh, right. I, I, I don't believe I had. If I, if I have, it's been years. I think I may have mentioned on our last show as we were talking about doing this is that my first came across these films the Rathbone Holmes films, they used to show them late at night, real late at night, uh, on a, they'd often pop up after Saturday Night Live or SCTV or the late night comedy shows I was watching. And so I would watch, be able to make it through part of them before I'd finally nod off. Or sometimes I'd nod off during the show before and wake up and suddenly be in the middle of Sherlockville, you know, middle of suddenly wake up to Rathbone's voice and, you know, and, and I would watch some of them there. So they just kind of all blend together for me. So I'm bas- I'm pretty much going into this series with the, idea that I haven't seen any of them, even though I know that back, you know, years past, there yeah. probably were a couple that I saw from start to finish, but I'm considering myself really a newbie uh, to this series. Cool, cool. Well, this is going to be good because to a degree, you'll be able to, you'll kind of be the guidepost because mm-hmm. ever since these were issued on DVD, which is more than 10 years ago, I want to say almost 15 years ago now when these re- the restorations were put out on DVD, I started watching them then because... I've been very reluctant. I, I have a history with these movies that uh, I, I, I spent a lot of my uh, youth being a, a, a very strong proponent of if if it's not set in the proper time period, mm-hmm. you can go fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to know. I don't care. <laughs> and it took a long time. It's similar to the breakdown I had over... You must have been uh, seen a mini fisticuffs <laughs> back in the college days there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, but it's very similar to the to the path I trod about uh, Tarzan, about mm. you know coming to the, the Tarzan character. It, it's the same with Sherlock Holmes. I came to both of those characters from the original stories. Mm. Uh, I read the books, I read the short stories, and to me, 
it, the closer you can hew to those literary roots, mm-hmm. more I'm going to like you, the happier I'm going to happier I'm going to be. The, the more you stride away from that, the more uh, so let's, let's say the more liberties you take with the with mm-hmm. the, the what's on the page, mm-hmm. the the quicker I'm going to be to start calling you an asshole. <laughs> Well, luckily, I've softened over the years, and I made that—I oh, yeah, made that—I made that long—I made that long, drawn-out thing with with Tarzan, where it finally came to the—I came to the point where I can accept things like the the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan version, where suddenly, you know, so, for some reason, this incredibly intelligent person can live with a woman who speaks perfect English for decades and never pick up on the correct syntax for the goddamn language. Okay. <laughs> It's fantasy. I'll cope with it. I'll move on. <laughs> so if I can overcome that hurdle to right, enjoy sure. the Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan films, it was a much smaller hurdle to overcome yeah. the, let's set the Sherlock Holmes tales, or let's take the, the, the main characters and set these stories in a different time. That's okay. I finally got to the point where setting them in the 1940s was okay. And I finally got to the point where it's, hey, set them at any time. I don't care. 22nd century animated 22nd century Sherlock Holmes stories. Hey, what the hell? Let's check it out. Why mm-hmm. not? Mm-hmm. But not everybody can make that leap. There was a lot of resistance to these when this film series cranked up. You watched the first two that were produced by uh, 20th Century yeah. Fox. Yeah. And then along comes the war, mm-hmm. and they stop production. Although also, apparently, uh, those two films did not do nearly as well as 20th Century Fox had hopes for, from what I'm told. Uh, they produced The Hound of the Baskervilles first. Mm-hmm. And then it was just, uh, I think the second one was, was it just called The Adventure of Sherlock Holmes? The adventure, yeah, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. And they had actually greenlit that and were in production on that one before Hound even came out. And mm-hmm. so they, they, they went ahead and finished and put it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, along with the fact that, oh, shit, we're in Europe, I guess we should mm-hmm. hold off on this kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is what led to us eventually getting Universal to pick up the character and... Poach, Basil Rathbone, and Nigel Bruce from mm-hmm. the previous two films. Mm-hmm. But that was a little easy in the first place because in the intervening years, uh, very smart radio producers had seen the uh, wisdom mm-hmm. of using those two actors in the uh, the ongoing radio adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So now, the assuming, two of those had been yeah. playing them on the on the radio for years at that point. Now, I'm so. assuming both of y'all have, have heard those have some of those episodes. I've, I've, Quite never, I've never heard oh, any I of have. them. I, but, I, yeah. I saw all of them out, as many as I could find. Yeah, I think they did something like 300, which is it's oh, like, man, no, no wonder Nigel, I mean, no wonder uh, Basil Rathbone was tired of or uh, wanted out of the series <laughs> by the time it was, you know, of course he never could really truly escape it. And, no, uh, no, no, but, he uh, never could. But, but, yeah. but that's the thing is yeah. he played that character in literally hundreds of episodes of the radio show and then did this series of movies in the Mm forties. And, uh, you know, it it has to be nice to have an identifiable character that you're known for. Mm -hmm. I mean, decades past, you know, you're, you're playing in the character. I mean, never played the character again. Well, especially when he, when he gets to play a heroic character, considering the majority of the characters that he played outside of this were not, (laughs) not of that ilk, you know, it's this (laughs) fair point. Now, Beth, I know, by the way, people, the reason that Beth is actually involved in this is that I know no one who has read more uh, Sherlock Holmes pastiches, yeah. all of the all the various. I mean, I think she's making an attempt to read every single damn Sherlock Holmes story written by someone who is mm-hmm. not Arthur Conan Doyle. As long as I can find them, she <laughs> she reads them, <laughs> and even 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 I ones that I them. can't find, yeah, she she reads them at an insane at an insane pace. 
did, when, when did you first read? I mean, I'm assuming you came to Sherlock Holmes. Did you first see the the movies, or did you come to the to the did you come to it through the stories first? Where where did you fall on the uh, the Sherlock Holmes scale? Here? Well, I was heavily into detective early the detective genre. I, I was big uh, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, even really early in my library career. So I was reading. I was seeking out that kind of thing. I cannot re- remember if I had read all of the canon before I saw the first Sherlock Holmes movie, but I think I had at least read some of the, the canon, what what we'll refer to as the canon. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I really can't nail it down as to when I became such a diehard Sherlock Holmes fan, but I know that I had already read uh, I'd, I'd read all the canon that I could find. I mean, you couldn't always find all of the 56 short stories yeah. that you could, you know, you could get your hands on a lot of stuff. But I had read a lot of that before I even started picking up basically anything because I just fell in love with the character so hard. I just started picking up anything that had anything to do was based around it. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah. did you do you do you remember the first film that you saw? Do you have any? I mean, is there a strong flashpoint memory of any of like the first? Sherlock Holmes film that you saw? Because because there's only been a few thousand. Yeah. <laughs> I want to say it may have been the 24th, was it 21st Century Hound? The Hound of Baskerville? Oh, the Hound of Baskerville is from 39? Yeah, it may have yeah. been that. But I also, out of the three that are going to be in this sequence, uh, the one with the girl who's the chauffeur in this one. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. Darn it! Uh, Hillary Brooke plays. Uh, she play, well. She's she appears in three of these films. She's a very small role in this one, and then she's in. Uh, is it Faces Death? Yeah, I think it's Sherlock Faces Death. Faces Death, and then. Uh, uh, woman in Green. The Woman in Green. The Woman in Green. Yeah. Yeah, that is the one. One of the ones that I remember the most, the best, because I really. That's one of the ones that seemed to have fallen into some weird kind of uh, public domain area for a very long period of time. You could see that one kept mm-hmm. popping up on uh, cheap public domain videotapes yeah. for a very long period of time, right. which means that it probably was regularly shown on, you know, on uh, independent television stations too, mm-hmm. because they could get a print of it for, and not have to pay anybody anything. Mm-hmm. So that's a possibility as well. You know? yeah, so that, that may, I'm not sure. I know that I know those two probably the best. If I see them, I know I, I remember the most of those. And that's so a flash one like, because you remember Hillary Brooke, right? Yeah, because when, when we were rewatching this movie, mm-hmm. you went, "Oh, I know her. I know mm-hmm. her. I know." Yeah, and uh, she has a very small role mm-hmm. in this. That one that I will argue has to have been chopped down. Yeah. It seemed like it was meant to be a little more, doesn't it? It's yeah. a feeling like there was meant really? something more meant for that story. For that, yeah. You know. She, I mean, she was too good an actress to come mm-hmm. in for two. You mm-hmm. know, what? Five minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. well, less than that. I mean, I think she's in a total of three scenes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, you know, and the most significant conversation between her and the other characters, she is driving a car and mm-hmm. talking to them while they're in the back yeah. seat. Because there's even this kind of thing dropped early in the film that she's kind of following them and watching over them, kind of. Yeah. If I'm, you know, nothing ever really mm-hmm. comes of that. You know, nothing. So. Yeah, nothing. Which means that it really does feel like mm-hmm. they were working hard to try to keep this thing at six at sixty five minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I was a Basil Rathbone fan too, though, because I was a big uh, black and white film, especially Errol Flynn, and so you know that they always cross paths in the sort of you know swashbuckling thing. So mm-hmm. I had a really 
bad crush on Basil Rathbone. <laughs> you probably yeah. want to resist that profile. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you uh, right up front. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hide I'm not gonna hide this particular complaint that I'm gonna have. Um, what do you think of Basil's hairstyle? I knew you were gonna. I knew you were gonna. Because I every time I see this movie, I swear to you, I want to pause it, step into the okay. frame, take a brush, yeah. fix his hair, I and then step back out. It's like you're, now you look good, baby. Now you look fine. Listen, see, his hair was bad in a couple of these. Well, it was just kinda... listen, I'll tell you, I watched. You know, again to get pre- preparation for this, just because I really wanted to start from the very, very beginning. You know, I did watch the first two 20th Century Fox films. Yeah, and I swear. He looks like he's aged ten years between that those films and this one, and yet there was only like two or three years between them. And I honestly yeah. think a lot of it has to do with the hair. I think he, I, I really think that made him look older, even though they didn't really color it, you know. That, but it just something about sweeping it forward like that, and it makes it somehow to me. I don't know. He just looks much older to me. It's and weird. Well, you know, in in if you you're if you read the canon, you know that supposedly Sherlock wasn't very neat. Because uh, no. it, he wasn't right, right. Yeah. studious yeah, sure. about his, uh, and Basil Rathbone was fastidious. I mean, yeah. he was mm-hmm. always to the yeah. nines, mm-hmm. and so <laughs> that was a big disparity in him and the character he was playing. But I was thinking, well, maybe they were they asked him to look a little disheveled, disheveled yeah. because you know, we, you know, Sherlock wouldn't comb his hair every. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've heard, I've read is that maybe some maybe this was a throwback to the uh, a particular hairstyle from the late eight, late eighteen hundreds. I don't know. Well, in I, this case, it would be the forties, though, right? So I mean, right, which 40, would be like, like which would mean that it would be like a carryover from. An oh, interpretation, an interpretation, maybe a stage interpretation of the character. <sighs> well, that's interesting as, because his hair does look like. I mean, some old photographs of some of the early. Like actors in pa- plays, you know, I'm thinking of there's somebody yeah, I'm thinking does, of. That it doesn't team. look like the way he's represented in the pageant drawings, in right? The original no, stories when no. it was published in the Strand. It's, it doesn't look like that. No, no. But maybe some of the stage interpretations where you're getting mm-hmm. this idea of, well, this was the, you know, this is a hairstyle of the time, and a lot of those plays are being produced in the yeah. early 1900s, and so it wouldn't, it'd be in recent memory, and it might still be in style. Who the fuck knows? I mm-hmm. certainly don't. Yeah. <laughs> but but, I, but yes, you brought it up. I was going to bring it up if no yeah, one man, else did. Like say, <laughs> I'm serious, man. I mean, it, it's. I, I will say, I will say this. I do at times find it distracting, and mm-hmm. I know it's probably, probably shouldn't be. That distracting, but I keep getting distracted. At the very end, especially, there's this one little curl that looks like it's just about to creep into his eyeball. (laughs) Yes, Yes, exactly. And it's it's like, come on, man. Somebody, somebody, anybody, brush his hair back. (laughs) Seriously, man, just brush his hair back. Everything's fine. Grab a comb. I don't know, use a a branch, anything at all. Brush the hair back and I won't (laughs) stop feeling... That he doesn't seem to understand how hair works. It's, <laughs> how can you be this smart and this clueless? I, I, I love you, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I tell you what, we we've gone on at length here. Let's uh, take this a quick is just break. the intro. This, this, this is just the intro. We weren't even we weren't even talking about the damn movie. Yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, tell you what, we'll uh, take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll uh, dive headlong into uh, uh, an in-depth discussion of Sherlock Holmes in the Voice of Terror. It's the From B to A podcast season two at from B to A dot dot com and on Apple Podcasts. I take a celebrity who took a while to make it big and compare that pre-stardom career to the career of someone who made it big right away and then established more of a cult fandom. This season I am covering Angelina Jolie. You were the one. You were the one. 
and film director, master of Italian horror, Lamberto Bava. It was only a bad dream. There will be cyborgs, demons, ogres, supermodels, giallo, and a smooth-talking Danny Aiello. I see you ordered the turkey sandwich. You like turkey? Yep. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. This podcast takes no shortcut in producing outstanding content. How they haven't become more widely recognized is beyond me. I love this show. Smart commentary, in-depth interviews, and great production. It's obvious how serious these guys take their podcast and bring that next level of professionalism that anyone would be hard-pressed to match. There are few things better in life than listening to people who are both passionate and knowledgeable about their subject matter. The Projection Booth, with their wide and wild range of film discussions, is one of those things. Simple as that. The Projection Booth is the highest quality film podcast around. I love the focus on cult films, witty, informative banter, and amazing interviews. The Projection Booth is the best podcast out there, if you're a serious film lover. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at projectionboothpodcast.com. Germany Broadcasting, Germany Broadcasting, people of Britain, greetings from the Third Reich. This is the voice you have learned to fear. This is the voice of terror. Again, we bring you disaster, crushing, humiliating disaster. It is folly to stand against the mighty wrath of the Fuhrer. Do you need more testimony of his invincible might to bring you to your knees? Very well. Are you ready, operative number seven? This is the voice of terror. A secret airplane factory somewhere in England. Listen, the screams of the dying can still be heard. This is the voice of terror. Are you there, people of Britain shivering in your cellars? Listen, operative 41. The fuse is lighted. Oil to fuel your navy, to feed your tanks. There it goes up in smoke by the millions of gallons. This is the voice of terror. Do you still believe that there are secrets unknown to the Fuhrer? Listen. Tonight at 7.10, an important diplomat boarded a train at a little station outside Liverpool. Each split second is accounted for. The rails divide. The train hurtles through the air. The diplomat will make no report in London. This is the voice of terror. Englishman, do you still await your doom in your stupid, stuffy little clubs? It will come, I promise you. Operative 23, the time is now. We strike you on the high seas, as well as on the land. This is the voice of terror. Englishman, the Fuhrer strikes you now as he pleases. Water pours through your greatest dam, smashing everything before it, even as our invincible armies roll toward their objectives. In 1942, Universal agreed to pay $300,000 for the screen rights to the Sherlock Holmes character, as well as the rights to 21 of the author's short stories for a seven-year period. So they got their hands on Rathbone and Bruce. Hmm. At that point, they're probably, you know... What three hundred fifty thousand dollars into an investment on this, and so yeah, it's like, yeah. okay, here's twenty five bucks. Go make me a film. Here's the back lot. Here's the back lot key. Go to town. So, uh, actually, that's not really true. As much as as much as these are B movie programs, I mean, I'm sorry, B movie programmers, I should say. Uh, this is a fertile period for one of my favorite genres, which is one that I don't talk a whole lot about on the on the podcast, but one that I could build an entire podcast around. 
I love mystery films. Mm-hmm. I love mystery novels. Mm-hmm. When I was growing up, the two things that I thought of when people talked about reading fiction mm-hmm. and reading genre fiction mm-hmm. specifically were the, the two genres I figured they were talking about immediately were science fiction and mystery. Mm-hmm. Because those seemed to be the two that were the most pure entertainment. If you're reading a science fiction novel, you're reading for entertainment. If you're reading a murder mystery novel, you're reading for entertainment. If there's something else stuck in there that you glean from it, cool. Mm-hmm. But yeah. this is entertaining reading. That's why the book is in your hand. Yeah. Now, see, uh, here's okay. I'll bring this up because uh, I don't know. We may have discussed this in the past on Nashy Castaway if we were doing a mystery film, but um, I'll ask you two guys again. Um, when I I love the mystery genre. I mean, I read a lot of mystery books, but I figure I'm an odd duck when it comes to reading these because I don't ever try and sit there and try and figure out the mystery as I'm reading it. Do you guys do that? When you read a mystery, are you trying to, as you're reading it, trying to put things together and put clues together and trying to see if you can figure out who is the... (laughs) That's an excellent question. Because I don't... I figured that would make me weird. I would figure most people who love the mystery genre are, in a sense, love it because they are trying to solve the whodunit. And I don't. Now, sometimes, every now and then... In other words, if the answer comes to me, it's going to just come to me because it's just going to leap into my head and something will click. Right, right. But I don't sit there and every now and then think about it and think and try and solve it. Well, that's kind of where I was going to go with my answer because... Not really. Mm-hmm. I, the purpose of me reading a murder mystery is for me to not. It is not for me to attempt to figure it out beforehand. It's mm-hmm. for me to be led very quietly and calmly. Mm-hmm. Well, not necessarily calmly, mm-hmm. but to be led to the resolution. I, I'm just looking to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, it can be fun. You take a break from the book for a while, and you kind of think about who it could be, what are the possibilities, this out or the other, and maybe you think about it a little bit. But I'm not actively, you know, like mm. sitting down and making notes or anything, mm. trying to figure out who the hell could it be, because I'm just enjoying the story. I, I know I'm going to eventually find mm. out. So it's just like I can, I can waste the time thinking about this, or I could just read the damn story and find out. Mm-hmm. But the more of these that you read over the course of your life, mm-hmm. you see, you know, you you catch on to a lot of the tricks of the writers, yeah. and so there comes a point where you're going, ah, oh, that's weird. We haven't heard from this character in a long time. I bet something's going on there, mm-hmm. but. That could either be a, a, a smart writer who knows that people who read these books read a lot of them, and therefore I'm going to use that against the, the, the person who is actively attempting to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So, no, I don't go out of my way attempting to figure out that because part of the pleasure for me is having the, the mystery unfold. I think I do it more to films than I do books. Oh, yeah? I think when I'm watching a film, mm-hmm. I try to get ahead of the film because... In films, there are, it's sometimes a lot easier to see the red herrings. Mm-hmm. Oh where, yeah, yeah. Where so I think I do. I don't think I do it. I think, mm. I don't think I do it that much in books. Okay, that's I, interesting. Unless it, I think it might also depend on the author and how talented they are, uh, because mm-hmm. the more talented an author is, the more you're just captured by the story and the you skill just of the writing, you, really, yeah. you, you really don't you're going with the ride and if the author never takes you out of it then you never really mm-hmm. you're just going and like mm-hmm. I said if you take a like he said if you take a break from the book you might think about it now some authors that aren't as good I think if you're mm-hmm. not in the story then sometimes you're thinking about uh, 
Mm-hmm. You're trying to make it more interesting exactly. for yourself by just trying to put, <laughs> yeah, think about exactly. the clues if the writing is exactly. not just captivating well, well, you. Here's, here's the thing. You mentioned that sometimes you you will try to figure things out in a film more than you will in a book. And that makes sense because, A, it's a much quicker ride to, to watch a film than read a book. Exactly. So all the details are kind of more fresh in your right. mind. The characters are... And also, the, your point about red herrings is, is very obvious when, uh, unfortunately, when you're talking about movies... Sometimes the casting spells out red herrings. Yeah, we're fast. gonna get to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes you cast certain actors, and it's yeah. like, you know, that's a guy famous for playing mad scientists, murderers, and motherfuckers. Yeah, I think he's not. Yeah, I think he's a red herring. He's either the dude or a big red herring. Yeah, yeah. 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 We'll get to Henry Danielle, won't we? Oh yes, yes we will. Yes we will. Well. One of the things I love about taking a run through this series as part of this 1940s Universal Horrors thing is that it gives me the chance to talk about not just the the literary antecedents to this kind of thing, but the fact that at this point, especially in the 1940s, there were a lot of mystery film series going on. Remember, mm-hmm. these are the days before television, folks. Mm-hmm. You didn't get 20 or 30 episodes of a TV series McLeod, right. where you had a, a procedural or a mm-hmm. mystery of the week or anything like that going on, what you got were crime series. You got mm-hmm. things like The Falcon, mm-hmm. The Saint. Uh, in the 30s, you got things like Bulldog uh, Drummond and Bull, Bulldog Drummond or yeah, The Thin Man. Yeah. Or, th- of course, Thin Man being like an A level version of right, it. Right, yeah. MGM spent real money on yeah. that series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philo, the Vance, four, yeah. Philo Vance. Uh, back in the '40s, you get uh, things like uh, oh darn it, the one well, with Charlie Chester, Chan, yeah, it's like that. well Charlie Chan and the, the one with Chester Morris. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. Boston Blackie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you get Boston Blackie, you get The Crime Doctor, you get series like that. Mm-hmm. And I love those series. I love I love going through those things. I get frustrated when I have to like go and track down one of these series that's not been made more readily available on DVD mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. because it's like mm-hmm. God damn it, I want to sit down and go through the whole friggin' run. Mm-hmm. Uh, much you know, much the same way you'd feel about like a, a run of uh, one of your favorite characters in a in a series of novels. I'm but a, I'm addicted to those. A lot of the ones that you guys just listed are all on old time radio. Mm, oh yeah, 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 right, true. They had the and, radios runs too. So yeah. that's one of the things I love. I love radio shows, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. The, the mysteries are the ones. That I, I watch, I mean, listen to, watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, I watch <laughs> theater of the mind. <laughs> I watch them in my head. Um, my head movies. <laughs> <laughs> Cinema of the mind. <laughs> uh, just, it's, yes, that's a Tropic Thunder callback, folks. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, the old the old time radio stuff. Like I say. The, the Sherlock Holmes radio series, I mean, you know, not every not every episode is going to be uh, out of the park winner, but to a certain mm. degree with those series, especially if you produce hundreds of them, you're there mm. because you enjoy the, the setup, the characters, mm-hmm. and the actors. Mm-hmm. That's the reason you're there. The sure. thrills are not necessarily always in a super fresh story, especially, mm. you know, decades removed from when they were originally broadcast in the first place. And a lot of that is true also of these films. Mm-hmm. Voice of Terror being the first and being the only one not directed by the man who ended up kind of shepherding the, the entire rest of this series, Universal, 
and in some ways, it's kind of an odd man out. Uh, it's it's the first, and therefore they're you know they're they're figuring out the rules of the road. They're figuring out how they're going to approach the character. They're figuring out how they're going to approach this series because they already know they're going to run a series. They've bought the rights mm. to all these stories or twenty one stories, yeah. and they've got it for seven years. So which, they fully intend to do this. Which I think explains how uh, even from this very first film in this series, it has the same opening with their shadows as yes. they're walking. You know, they obviously had already prepared like, hey, we want to have a an opening we can use for every. Film, which I think is cool. I love that whole opening thing of them, where you just see their shadows walking along there. It's just really great. They knew what they, they knew what they were walking into by setting these things in the 1940s in the first place, mm-hmm. because the film does begin with a short introductory card right after that opening credit sequence, which expounds on the timelessness of Sherlock Holmes <laughs> and the inherent so ageless, down, folks. yeah, ageless, <laughs> invincible, and unchanging yeah. qualities of yeah. the character himself. Uh, it's and it's smart. I mean, because yeah. hey, you know what? Geek culture isn't an internet invention. Folks. Yes, it is. Because yeah. people got it's pissed not. about. It. Remember, oh, I was yeah, pissed. Exactly. Yeah. I was pissed when I was a teenager right, about sure. them fucking up shit uh, with Tarzan. Well, yeah. I told you how canon kind of evolved with Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it in what, was in what way? Ronald Knox. He was a uh, he was a clergyman, and I forget mm-hmm. pronounced that. Oh, Monsignor. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, Monsignor? <laughs> How's that? That's that great. Yeah. <laughs> you know it's authentic. Right? <laughs> but uh, he uh, was uh, a writer as well, and he studied, he made a study of uh, Sherlock Holmes, and he, because he came from the cloth, he... Uh, oh, brought oh, in the I word canon because canon before that right canon was usually the referred to when they were looking for canon it was referred to the in the biblical sense yeah. well, it's, it's, yeah. the, it's the it's the the holy books which right. which of the writings from those from that period of time was considered to be actually uh, you know, inspired by God, which ones are actually, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. fascinating. I, exactly. I, that makes total sense. I never knew that's where that came from, but I guess it makes sense, too, that Sherlock Holmes would also be one of the first series that somebody kind of attempted to sit down and, and do that kind of meticulous, you know. And I think he may have been doing it kind of tongue-in-cheek, but at was. the same time, yeah. they it, it, he was yeah. kind of establishing what he considered <laughs> the yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle canon and kind of well well i mean in truth we should always take these things we should always do those sort of things tongue in cheek and not take them so damn seriously you know they're as fun as they are there is that exactly (laughs) it's it's because because at this point remember spider-man would be dead yeah because he was a teenager in the early 60s so folks Hmm. calm down everybody calm the hell down (laughs) Oh, and we'd be on our fifth or sixth actual Batman because yeah. you, oh, you yeah. ain't doing all that crap and retaining cartilage <laughs> in your knees, I'm telling you now. And there wouldn't be any Cumberbatch no, 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 no. or no, no, no. Well, I mean, there wouldn't be or any Robert Downey Jr. Or well, not only that, there wouldn't have been one of my first film experiences with Sherlock Holmes. There wouldn't have been the cool-ass Peter Cushing version oh, right. from, yeah. from Hammer. The, sure. I, I'm pretty sure the first Sherlock Holmes film I ever saw was the Hammer Hound oh, of the Baskervilles. Yeah, love that one. Yeah. But there was also the extraordinary Murder by Decree. Yeah. Uh, Bob Clark's film Very from, from the 70s with James Mason where mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's it's Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Uh, not the first or the last time yeah. such a story would be told. Yeah. But still, it's one of those things where once you establish a character so firmly in the public mind, mm. and 
people people are allowed to play in that fertile field, yeah. you get some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. What it about seven percent solution? Oh yeah, to, I was about Sigmund to go Freud right in Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I love that exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. The 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 idea. Well, I mean, I'll be honest. If you want to talk about the the printed page, I am a humongous fan of Fred Saberhagen's mm-hmm. uh, Holmes Dracula file. Yeah, which I fun. think is fantastic stuff. Yeah. And it's something that I wish he'd written more. I mean, he continued on with the Dracula character. And just as a quick aside, remember, people, always remember, the three most adapted-to-film literary characters ever are Sherlock Holmes, Tarzan, and Dracula. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, You won't find characters more adapted, you won't find characters more written about, and mm. you won't find more pastiches involving those characters right. uh, than... Well, you can you can find tons of them. And there's more than you want to shake a stick at, but that's the joy. Is those characters are so indelible they built they've been built into the public consciousness worldwide, to the point where there are excellent versions of Sherlock Holmes made in Russia, for God's sake. <laughs> we've still yeah we've still got those. We've only watched a couple of them. And the one we we that wasn't really. A Sherlock Holmes, but the man. Oh, the who, German film. The German film that the, we just the, yeah, the man who was Sherlock Holmes from, oh. from 1937. Okay, excellent movie. Oh my god, so good. And I and won't ruin anything to to, mm. to to say anything other than the fact that from the very beginning of the film, you're aware that the two people who are kind of pretending to be Sherlock Holmes and mm. Watson are a con man of a sort. Mm. Okay, and that uh, let's just say it's a great movie. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Cool. But I mean, if you couldn't play around with the character yeah. to a certain degree, yeah. well, then you wouldn't be getting something as brilliant as that movie mm-hmm. or as wonderful as a lot of these pastiches. And you wouldn't be getting something as interesting as hell as shifting the character of the 1940s mm-hmm. and turning this series into wartime propaganda. Mm-hmm. Gentlemen, my connection with this case must remain absolutely secret. You understand that, of course. I certainly. You will let the council know at all times just what you're doing. I shall give you such information as I think wise to disclose in the interests of safety, both the public's and your own. The Inner Council has never shared its secrets with anyone. I demand that you keep us informed of your activities and progress. Come along, Watson. Mr. Holmes, I want to apologize for your rather lukewarm reception here. Oh, thank you, Sir Evan. I'm used to the chilly atmosphere of high places. And, of course, you recognize the importance of time. Quite. And results. Mr. Lloyd, I'm quite sure that Mr. Holmes can be trusted not to fail. He never has, you know. Thank you, Watson. The word is seldom. (laughs) Goodbye, Sir Evan. (laughs) Goodbye, sir. Goodbye, Byron. Goodbye, Watson. Folks, we're going to spoil the living shit out of this movie, so get ready for it. That's right. I intend to talk about everything down to the hair follicles on everyone's face because they forgot to shave that morning. So calm down and deal with it. The film begins with the voice of terror broadcasting one of his portentous radio messages to the British people. In mocking terms, he describes successful sabotage operations live as they occur. Now, one thing we should all point out is exactly what this movie this script story is, which is a combination of the Arthur Conan Doyle story, His Last Bow, which the credits actually tell you. Yeah. And the historically the historically worrisome thing mm-hmm. <laughs> that actually existed, which would be the uh <clears throat> character Lord Ha Ha. Yeah, Lord Ha Ha. Yeah. And the more you know about Lord Ha Ha, the more disturbing the concept is because mm-hmm. Folks, Vietnam was not the first time. Yeah. 
Tokyo Korea. Rose had a precedent. Yeah, to- yeah. Yeah. Tokyo Road Rose had a precedent. Remember, as soon as radio was a, a thing where most <clears> people <throat> took in information that way, got some news from there, it was a, a major way in which the uh, the general population gained information. It was also used for nefarious purposes. The voiceover of this Voice of Terror character would have been immediately recognizable to contemporary audiences because it's obviously built on Lord Haw, who was a British fasc- a British fascist named William Joyce, who worked for Ger- Goebbels, broadcasting messages to Britain, and uh, it's kind of disturbing. The more mm-hmm. you the more you know about the man, the more you yeah. dig into his his history, the more unclean you feel, and the more you kind of need to take a bath. Mm-hmm. But this is based on a real person. They rename it the Voice of Terror here to kind of give it a an unreality because let's not hit too close to home. Plus, we actually, as the story unfolds, spoilers, we capture this guy and get rid of him. But it is one of those things where even if there wasn't the overt propaganda aspect of the story, just the idea that we're taking into consideration something that was happening right then, really happening, mm-hmm. folding it into this <clears throat> fictional story yeah. and then coming up with a solution mm-hmm. for it. Is one of those things that would be would have been a, a you know a rally around the flag kind of idea for any audience at the time anyway. Mm-hmm. It's 1942 after all. Well, the Inner Council of British Intelligence, comprising of the top men in the military and and government, are very concerned about these broadcasts, as you can expect. They can only wonder who and where the voice of terror is, so they decide to bring in Sherlock Holmes to help track him down. Oh wait, they don't. One of them does. Yes, but the Henry Danielle character. No, it's not Henry Danielle. Oh, he, I'm, he's so, I'm sorry. It's not. That's, it, that's yeah. right. Henry Danielle does definitely not want. That's right. You're right. It's the. Yeah, uh, this only the one guy who seems to be very positive. Well, he's an old friend of. Uh, he's he's an old colleague of uh, Watson. Watson's. Watson's. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, despite a distinctly chilly welcome from some members of the council, Sherlock Holmes agrees to help in this most important of cases, but he insists that he works alone. Well, you know. With Watson, of course. Yeah, right. Yes, of course. Well, <laughs> with his constant shadow. Yeah. Back in Baker Street, Dr. Watson cleans his pistol, and Holmes reclines in an armchair while the radio plays Beethoven's Fifth. He compares a live version with a recorded one and draws a graph, all the while observing an, oscillosc- an oscilloscope at his elbow. There's a knock at the door, and when Holmes answers it, one of his underground informants, Gavin, falls through the door- doorway with a knife in his back. He quickly dies after managing to utter one word. Well, he utters more than a few words. He utters a couple of words, but the the important piece of information he gets out is just the word Christopher. Mm -hmm. Holmes and Watson leave immediately to find Kitty, Gavin's wife, in Limehouse to see if she knows the significance of Gavin's last word. They're the victims of an assassination attempt en route. The method is an expert knife thrower from Hamburg, the same method as Gavin's murder. Now, Let's take into account that we're dealing with a Sherlock Holmes story here, so the, the the plot has to give Holmes at least a few opportunities to show off his ability to discern mm-hmm. lots of information from very few clues. Right, and uh, he does that uh, in the meeting with the Inner Council, relating uh, the strain and nervousness of a couple of different characters and right. how they're how they're dealing with things. He tells one character, I think, it's just been. On vacation or somewhere, come in from from the like, country, and he yeah. tells him where he's yeah. kind of just come in from by some clue. And in this case, he examines this knife that was thrown at them, and can can discern that the uh, the person was from Germany. The knife is from Hamburg. 
how tall the person was, mm. yada, yada. So we're getting those little bits of yeah. Holmesian yeah. deductive reasoning right. as we go along. Holmes and Watson soon find a backstreet dive and ask the landlord to go and fetch Kitty. As they wait for her arrival, there's a great scene when Holmes runs into Camberwell, an ex-convict who's there in this bar that he sent that Sherlock sent up to prison several years before. That's a pretty cool scene. I do really like that. I really like, I like the that scene dialogue because in that scene there, and that's how it's yeah, played. It's it's played very cool as uh, you see Holmes explain to this man who's really aching to find out how in the hell who yeah. like who essentially squealed on him to mm. get him sent to prison. And Holmes just tells him, well, I knew it because you left this ash behind. Yeah. I, there was one other piece of information, and he said, yeah, you might, you might as well have signed your name to the, to the crime. Yeah, yeah. And the, the guy takes this in, sits mm-hmm. there, and realizes, my God, I should, you know, yeah. I, I should be shot. I was, I was that yeah. stupid. I did. Yeah. I should have signed my name to it. Just with that information alone, he realizes. And, and once again, mm-hmm. it's, it's another little piece of deductive reasoning. Mm-hmm. In a story, and I think there's a, there's a reason... I want to see what you guys think about this. I think the reason they need to stick these little bits of deductive reasoning in here as we go along through the story is that this is a movie, this is a story, I should say, that does not rely on Holmes figuring uh, shit out. Yeah, I was going to say, there's not a yeah, whole lot of deducing. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. The plot, the main plot is not Holmes figuring shit out because he's yeah. intelligent. It's Holmes figuring shit out because... He sends people to go do some really dirty work. <laughs> it's more of a spy movie than yeah, anything yeah. else. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and the, go ahead. I'm go sorry, Matthew, go. And uh, it really is, the last bow. Oh, it's, is, oh the is, story? The original story? It's, yeah. Maybe it's, a, the only thing is there's a nod at the end, but in the last bow, he is undercover as a Kind of a counter espionage agent yeah. for two years, yeah. and yeah. I mean the last battle pretty much just consists really of one long scene, right? You know where they revealed it, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. said really in World War One, not World War Two, yeah. which, which I think is one of the neat things about this yeah. is that if they're going to use his last battle, you understand why mm-hmm. because that story was written. It was kind of a coda to mm-hmm. the yeah. to all the other Sherlock Holmes stories, mm-hmm. and it is set just. I mean, it's it's it, it was definitely written. But by the time his last battle was was published, everybody knew. Unfortunately, war was on the way, mm-hmm. and this was, uh, and everybody knew mm-hmm. <laughs> where it was coming from. What the what what mm-hmm. was driving this this entire uh, motivation to do what was going to happen, and there were people still trying to make it, you know, mm-hmm. to, to to stop it. But mm-hmm. it was written in response to the build up to that war, and in a lot of ways, taking that and shifting the idea to the first few days of a second war with the same antagonist is a smart move. I, I understand it. It's like if you're reading through those stories that they bought the rights to, that's the one where you can say, well, we just pluck this part of it out and use it as the, the crux of a, of a propaganda story for the next world, the next world war, quote unquote. And I can't remember his last bout. I, I mean, I knew he did, a, he did a lot of disguising himself, but this was really deep cover, and I don't know there are that many books or short stories where he was actually, in essence, a spy. 
Spy? No. No. Often he would, you know, in a lot of the, the original stories, he would disguise himself. And in fact, but, in the two 20th Century Fox films, he, he does some great disguises in there. You know, I mean, there's, there's, in yeah. fact, there's one where I, it truly actually threw, threw me. I did not even realize it was him. And, you know, a couple of them I, I saw kind of figured out early, but I think in Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, he does a disguise that's so good that I did not even realize till it's, until he reveals himself. You know, who he's that Sherlock Holmes. It's really, Rathbone does an amazing job as in the, in, in this disguise. So. Well, and Kitty soon arrives at the bar, and they manage to persuade her to help. Uh, and let's just say Kitty is played by uh, Evelyn or Evelyn Anchors, mm-hmm. right. who is someone we've talked about a number of times mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. Uh, not the least of which in the uh, the Wolfman episode, but mm-hmm. also quite a few. Uh, she was in, she was a star in a number of Universal films in the '40s, and she's someone that I feel you can always count on. She's not only a beautiful woman; she's a very good actress. She's someone who seems to be able to nail every performance you ask her to get. I'm not going to lie. She doesn't always carry off the British accent here. Yeah, it's a little okay. I was going to ask if you guys felt as iffy about the accent. I, I think she does. Yeah, she does a really good performance as the character. Yes, she does. But the accent I felt is a little hit and miss in some of the scenes there. Well, the the the, the, the moment the, the moment that I feel is a little cringy here is. When she says, "Well, I'm British," and I'm like, "No, you're not." <laughs> I, I, I that was the least you. sounding British line you said. <laughs> I love you to death, yes, yes. but British, you ain't. <laughs> well, the, the the speech is very rousing. The words in the speech are oh, very rousing. Oh, this this scene, I, I want oh, to say several she, things where about she, this. Where she, where she convinces the rest yeah. of the people. Yeah, because at first they don't want to help because know. they see Sherlock Holmes is the reason half of them may end up in prison or whatever. Yeah, so he's exactly. definitely, so she has to really, and, and their whole thing is, you know, why should we do anything to help out, you know, the authorities? Because uh, one thing I think is kind of neat about this scene is I do love the whole kind of Thieves Guild sort of film, a, a feel of this scene here. Yes, exactly. And, this guy, I'll go and say here that, you know, we were talking about, does this film have any elements that qualify as horror, you know, that could fit it into a horror film? And I, and to me, the only thing with this film that it does is that it, there's consistent things it does with lighting and shadow. Yes. And I think this kind of fits because I think London at that time, probably still at night, had a lot of lights out because it was still well, being remember, bombed occasionally. I mean, you're constantly so, being reminded of the blackout curtains yeah. and the fact that when they want to part the curtains, they, mm-hmm. they hey, yeah. hey, hey, turn the lights out. Which gives them a great excuse to use now the kind of classic universal lighting where every scene yeah. has, you know, bars of shadow going across it. Especially mm-hmm. in Steve's Guild, is like they've hardly got any light in there at all. Yeah. And it really gives us this real kind of under, it really kind of underscores the fact that it is the underground uh, and well, so that's I really like about. about yeah. Let's talk a little um, bit about the lighting because okay. I didn't want to. I didn't want to further slow us down a little bit okay. because in the opening scenes when we're in the inner, in the inner council, I really really love the lighting in that yeah. sequence yeah. because, and I, I I I swear anybody who could explain to me how these shadows are cast once I describe them to you, I will give you a cookie. <laughs> but when we're in the room being introduced to the uh, the inner council, the government, the military, important men who are, who are attempting to, to dope out exactly how England is going to survive mm-hmm. this attack by Germany, the shadows cast on the wall, the, hu- the huge wall behind everybody is going to remind you of a spider's web. Yeah, yeah. There's no way around it. Mm-hmm. That's there. And I would, I, I defy you to mm-hmm. explain how that makes logical sense yeah. <laughs> in that room because there's nothing that could possibly be casting yeah. that shadow right. Right. over that wall, mm-hmm. but it's there for a purpose. Yeah. These yeah. are the people at the center of the spider's web. And you can either look at them as uh, sitting there attempting to, uh, you know, 
to to feel what's moving on those various threads, or they're trapped inside someone else's web, and they feel trapped. But which are they? And they're trying to figure out how to. But that's a beautiful image, and it's another part of it's another one of those things you can get away with, not just in a black and white film, but in a film where expressionistic lighting and high contrast black and white uh, photography is is at play and what we're getting into here is the kind of stuff that would eventually turn into that most amazing of film genres for crime which is the whole film noir idea yeah the idea of these critics looking at movies like this and saying this is a film noir this is that that lighting scheme that allows you to and they play off of it beautifully throughout this movie once we get introduced to one of the main villains there's a scene in which that character first is introduced and all you can see is his hand and a gun hold in his his hand holding a, a pistol and then he moves just a little bit forward and he's in the light and then as we shift in other scenes with that same character one side of his face will be in shadow versus the other depending on where he moves within the scene mm-hmm. and it's just beautifully played and very carefully thought out because you can't you can't get this kind of shit set up without a lot of work Mm-hmm. So even yeah. though this is a B movie program, or even this is one where they're you know you've got a certain schedule and a certain amount of money, they're taking the time to get this shit right. And you said that earlier about it, you know, not being the like a huge bu- budget. But I, I was thinking when you said that, it's like it felt really gothic though, and I loved mm-hmm. the sets. Yeah. I, to mm-hmm. me, I, I mean, mm-hmm. if it was cheap. They sold me because I well, thought it, it was... It doesn't feel it was, cheap. Yeah. Yeah. It, the sets were beautiful and the lighting was fabulous. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, the first you know, thing that comes to mind is very gothic, but, you know... Well, I mean, and, and there's, and there, there's a huge nod toward that in the final scene with, in that ruined church. So, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. so, so I feel like we're probably all in agreement that this leans more towards a war propaganda film than a mystery film, you know, and at yes. times it's sort of... It's espionage. Yeah, and 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 it does, and at times you could be a little heavy with the rah rahing and stuff, you know, the rousing, right. you know. But it's a little much. Something is, you know, we always have that distance, that perspective, because you know, I I think we all, of course, understand how important it was at that time. Morale was because at this point, yeah. especially in forty two, there still wasn't a whole lot of indication that the Germans could be stopped. You know, I mean, they still, you know, they really hadn't begun to, to, to turn the tide back, you know, from that German war machine. And so... Oh, they were more than two years away from really feeling like there was a, a good chance yeah. of, of winning. So yeah. you know at that time how much fear there was and how much desperation there was. And so, yeah, I, I still got kind of tickled by this this Thieves World scene, you know, where she starts giving <laughs> the rousing, you know, because I just love how the basic whole point of that scene is, you know, you may be scum, but you're all scum. <laughs> you know, you know, his majesty's, even his majesty's scum is better than any German, you know? <laughs> See, I, and, I, and I don't know because I've not done a, I've not done a study of war propaganda films made during World War II. It'd be, it'd be a fun hmm. study and I'm sure there's a book out there that I should probably have on my shelf and be able to reference, but I don't know mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if this is like the earliest version of something like this where Looking at it from a distance of decades, of course, what we're yeah. looking at is something that is built to be a piece of war propaganda that will bolster the public's attitude toward what is to mm-hmm. come. We've mm-hmm. got a fight mm-hmm. in front of us, mm-hmm. and we're all mm-hmm. going to have to pull our own weight, or we're, yeah. or it's not going to happen. Yeah. So there's a there's a yeah. Looking back on it, it's a little. It can be sometimes over the top. It's not. I don't find any of the propaganda for World War II to be 
nearly as ridiculous as I find, right. <laughs> say, the, the Red Scare propaganda from the 50s, right. which is just right. hilarious to me. I find right. so much of it to be so over the top and insane. Well, it's just like I always say, you can't offend a Nazi. You know, it's like it's like it's the one group that you can still say anything you want to about and nobody's going to be offended about Nazi or what you well, say I mean, against it's, Nazis. It's, so. it's not only that, it's because we it's we have the we have the uh, we have the, the distance of history to know that most of the Red Scare bullshit was overblown. Right, right. But Hitler almost, was not. Hitler but was not almost overblown. none yeah. of the <laughs> no. wartime propaganda no. was overblown. I mean, they're. I mean, they were being bombed yeah. as this was going on. Now, you know, we made this was made comfortably in you yeah. know California, but yeah. in London, yeah. there were bombs raining down yeah. on the city for fuck's sake. Yeah, I mean, so, we, we still don't know if Hitler actually had caves full of werewolves and vampires that he was ready to unleash <laughs> upon. You know, but we can be pretty certain the guy was an asshole. You know, and and, uh, and pretty and, sure. sure yeah. That, that yeah, there was he no did science. unleash a lot of bad yeah. scientists to do some yes, pretty crappy yes, things. Well, there is that, and that is reality. This is true. Yeah. So so yeah. So so I totally get why that was so important for these films to carry that across. Yeah. But I did, like I said, that, that that speech, that whole that whole, and obviously they were kind of picturing the whole, uh, you know, trying to boost the morale. The, the yeah. point they're trying to get across that scene is that no matter who you are in our society, we right. need your help. Yeah. The whole idea is to try to bring everybody together. Yeah. Before we leave, Evelyn Anchors, but she's the one. Where didn't I stop you and say she looks like somebody? Oh, Evelyn Anchors, yes. Yeah. Uh, and this is honestly, you're true. She was Beth was noticing uh, our second time through the movie that it, this just keyed in her head uh, that she looked like the actress in uh, Sin City who played uh, Goldie and Goldie, Wendy, the Goldie, the, the twin girls that wanted uh, to die. The, yeah, the, yeah, the dame to die. Good for point. Them. I had not thought about that. You're right. And yeah. as soon as you yeah. see a picture, yeah. and look yeah. at her, it's like. Mm-hmm. Oh well, yeah. I, you know Frank Miller probably had her in mind, and mm-hmm. then when Rodriguez was mm-hmm. casting mm-hmm. and 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 deciding on the 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 hair the hairstyle mm-hmm. and everything, it's like this is pretty obvious, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Evelyn Anchors does look like I mean it does look like he's trying to have Evelyn Anchors in Sid City, yeah. Yeah. Now now I, I talking about her character Kitty. I've, in some synopsis I've read, it refers to her as his wife. As his, as, but also as a prostitute, and I'm like I've seen right. that referred. So it's like, how do you think she's coded? Because oh, I feel I like she's lot, supposed to... Yeah. yeah, okay. I mean, I what are your thoughts on that? Okay, yeah. I got a lot to say about this. Because mm-hmm. um, we can kind of jump ahead here. But yeah, then, what, well, if we need to wait. Well, okay. let's let's move ahead and then I'll get to it naturally. Okay. Um, okay. Boy, do I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> uh, well, she rouses the pub goers and gives that whole big patriotic speech kind of telling you, you know, even though you're you're criminals and you're on the edge of the law, mm-hmm. we're all in this together. And it reminds mm-hmm. me a whole lot of the scene that they 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 pulled in uh, the Rocketeer when the gangsters are all fine and happy to be <laughs> yeah. to yeah. be pulling some criminal shit until yeah. they realize that the man that they're hey. dealing with yeah. you're a fucking Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> and if some of those guns get turned toward that Nazi and go, yeah. hey, no, 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 yeah. I'll that shoot a, a cop great, if yeah. a cop's trying to arrest me, but you start fucking with the cops and you're a goddamn German and yeah. that is over. We are yeah. done being on your side. That is a great scene and yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Holmes visits the inner council again where they hear another broadcast from the Voice of Terror. This time the docks in the East End have been bombed. Holmes tells them that the Voice of Terror is not broadcast live, but rather it's recorded in England mm-hmm. and then picked up by a plane and flown to Zeisberg where it is then broadcast. The council the council is skeptical of this theory, but Holmes is resolute and points out that he's compared mm-hmm. The, the live broadcast versus recorded, and they do not sound the same. The council is skeptical of theory, but but uh, Holmes says, you got to roll with me here. Mm-hmm. And Kitty arrives at the council's room, 
And Holmes and Watson immediately leave after learning from her that Christopher refers to some old pre-Victorian docks on the East End. Or in the East End, pardon me. I'm not British, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Sir Lloyd of the Inner Council follows Holmes and Watson to the Christopher docks. That would be Henry Danielle, mm-hmm. who, and as soon as you mm-hmm. freaking put Henry Danielle in any mm-hmm. prominent role with any dialogue, you figure he's a villain. <laughs> he smells like a villain. He speaks like a villain. He looks like a villain. And this completely threw me. Because <laughs> later in this series, yes, he plays Moriarty. Sure does. He sure does. Henry Daniel is one of those great English actors from this period who is always great. But because of how good he is at playing bad guys, seeing him in a non-bad guy role is like having cold water splashed in your face. It just doesn't compute. So when this film reaches its climax and you realize, once again, people, spoilers, he's not the villain. He's not even close to one of the villains. He's a real good guy. It's kind of a shock. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stunner. It was kind of like when you it's like when they're in casting they say we need a we need a cold fish for this role, you know. <laughs> yes. It's like it's just like he was the go-to cold fish for whether he was playing a utter villain or just a unlikable decent guy, an unlikable basic guy. And this was one of the Sherlock Holmes movies that I do not think that I had seen more than once or twice. Vo- Vo- Voice of Terror this one? Yes. Okay. Voice of Terror. And so I had it was not one that I remembered, mm-hmm. but I did remember the one where he was Moriarty. Oh, and so, so therefore, as yeah. soon as I saw him, I thought, "Yeah, wait a minute, yeah, I, that it can't be this obvious that you know they're having him play yeah. Moriarty in this film." Mm-hmm. So it was it it threw me completely. Well, so that's the <laughs> that's the thing you've got to you've got to cope with if you if you ever sit down and watch these movies back to back, one. I understand why you would want to, but you're going to have a bit of a mental snafu every now and then because different actors play different roles across the films. Yeah. And yeah. Henry Danielle is in three of them mm-hmm. and doesn't play the same character twice. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with well, Hilary Brooke, who we'll talk about here eventually. Well, Lionel Atwell was in Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, not playing a villain, but he plays Moriarty later on in the series. Yep. And uh, uh, do you remember playing Moriarty in Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, a second 20th Century Fox Oh, my film? goodness. No, I do not because I haven't watched it in years. George Zucco, who's uh, oh, George another Zucco, one of yes. our great 40s villains. Uh, so they got some great people to play uh, Moriarty. But I was thinking, Henry Danielle, one more thing I want to say about him is... Uh, if they ever do the biopic of our favorite critic, Bosley Crowther, I think uh, Henry <laughs> Danielle would have been perfect to play Bosley Crowther. He does. Yeah, yeah, actually, if we can only get someone who can imitate Henry Danielle's, you know, yeah. his, his, his ability to sound, even if you're not looking at his face, yeah. it's like, oh, this guy's looking down his nose at me. Yeah. Yeah. This guy's yeah. definitely yeah. not this impressed Craig, Craig with me. is the word that comes Ooh, to yeah. mind. So. Yes. He's not impressed with me at all. <laughs> yeah. but I, I, lo- I love Henry Danielle. That was I mean, great, uh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> So he's one of those guys you can always count on. But when we get to uh, we get to this this piece of information, Sir Lloyd follows Holmes and Watson to the Christopher docks, and after they let him catch up, he tags along. As they search the docks, they're stopped by a man. Uh, this would be the character Mead, mm-hmm. played by another great character actor. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, is this guy fantastic! And it was his first film. That's what blew me away. The guy's great as Mead. Oh, it's like how had this guy not been on? Mm-hmm. Uh, had not been before the cameras before? Because after this, he was in a oh, lot yeah. of movies. Yeah. Uh, the the uh, I'm sorry, the actor is uh, Thomas Gomez. Mm-hmm. He's one of these guys who uh, he's really really good in this. He's a he's a slimy son of a bitch. 
but he's also a real threat. You get a real sense of menace from this guy, not just because he's you know pointing a gun at your at your main characters. This is when they they have this conversation with Meade, who's holding a gun on them. And, but and after some uh, politically charged banter, Holmes and company, along with the help of some of the pub patrons that Holmes has obviously had following him around to this place, so mm. that if if he achews <laughs> yeah, very yeah, right. carefully, it's that's their that's their signal to to move in and take these assholes out. Well, they overpower Meade and his cohorts, but Meade manages to escape through a trap door into a waiting speedboat below. This escape is very obviously being allowed to happen by Holmes, and uh, he takes the uh, the verbal browbeating from uh, Henry Danielle's character once this happens. Oh, yeah. Damn, how could I let that happen? That does, yeah. that does suck. Doesn't it? <laughs> well, a few days later, the police are chasing Kitty for pickpocketing, supposedly, mm-hmm. and yeah. she takes shelter in Meade's house at his request. Let's talk now mm-hmm. about this portion of what's going on here. Very obviously, Kitty has been sent by Holmes to uh, ingratiate herself, mm-hmm. quote unquote, with Mead so that they can get the information they need to put paid to this entire plot. It's the 1940s. This is not pre-code. We can't spell out what's happening here, but the movie yeah. does extremely well at making sure an adult audience is going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. We have the two of them talking, her thinking about leaving, him saying, well, yeah, you can go right on out there. I'm sure the cops that were after you are still out there waiting for you. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to know at that point, this is a setup, dude. Mm -hmm. She's not just accidentally showing up on your porch, but of course, he doesn't know this. Makes her a drink, hands her a drink. She takes the drink, looks up at him and smiles, and then we fade to black and go to the next scene. Well, if there's more clues later in the movie, which there are, we now know what's going on here. She's been sent there to have sex with this man, mm-hmm. get him to trust her, and to find out whatever she can. Mm-hmm. They're telling you this as cleanly as they have to in the 1940s, but making it clear, like I say to an adult audience, what's actually happening here. Yeah. This is the nasty end of Spycraft. This is what has turned into, let's put it this way. If this was a man doing this, having to ingratiate his way into the bed of a female spy and affect this, you've got James Bond. Mm -hmm. If you're doing this and you're a woman, and you've got damn good reason because you suspect this person you're doing this with is partially or possibly even directly responsible for the murder of the person that you loved... This is where it gets problematic. This is where I want to talk about one of the nastier aspects of the story that I don't think gets enough attention when you talk about this movie. Mm -hmm. She is the reason, that character, Kitty, Mm -hmm. is the reason everything works out okay. She's the one who gets Mm -hmm. this information that's got to be got. Mm -hmm. If, If she doesn't do her part, the rest of it falls apart. And what she does is, I mean, you can call it sleeping with the enemy. She goes to bed with this man to ingratiate herself with him, to make him trust her. And then, and once again, folks, spoilers here, I do not like the the feeling I get from what this movie does to the character in the final act. But you know why I did, though, don't you? I know why you might think 
I still find it detestable. There's no way for me to mm-hmm. look at what they do to Kitty's character and not kind of be pissed off. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely feel bad for the character. But I don't mean just yeah. feel bad for the character. Uh, That's what you're supposed to feel. Right. I feel, and I I, che- I checked. I wanted to know. Yeah. Because I couldn't find this. I wanted mm-hmm. to know mm-hmm. if there was a term uh-huh. for a character in a story. Uh-huh. Not necessarily a female, but probably mm-hmm. always going to be a female. Who does something, essentially, no matter that she is doing everything for the right reasons, that she's motivated for, for to do the right thing on the side of the angels, mm-hmm. because of a sexual trespass, she must be punished. Oh, yeah, I totally got that. I mean, I totally feel that that's the, that, that was part of the, what, that's re, the, what's going on here. That's yeah. the detestable part. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but it's not, I mean, knowing what we know of the Hayes office, you can't say it's that... Surpri- oh, first of all, she I'm, had to be I'm not a, surprised by it. She no. had to be a prostitute in the first place to even be a character. To be, in other words, they were not going to, you know, for them to take a female character at a movie at that time and have her do this, they had to go ahead and already make her a fallen woman, quote unquote, you know, so to yeah. not offend the delicate sensibilities. And even though they let her die in a hero, you know, a noble death, she still had to die at the end because that's the Hayes office decree that hey, you know, prostitutes gotta gotta be punished, you know, no matter what good that. And I know it sucks, but well, it's not just that; it's that. That's my that's my major beef with mm. what was forced upon mm. films of this type. Yeah, for characters of that type. Yeah, and I understand that the only way to do this and make it palatable to an audience, mm. really, almost at any time, is to have the villain who she's you know she's slept with and betrayed mm. murder her. Mm. What I don't like about that aspect of it, there's couple of things I don't like about it at all. I've already mm. already said part of that, but is that he's able to grab a gun that's that's sitting there yeah. okay. and shoot her. I see where you're going with this, I think, yeah. And to me, that kind of undermines everything else that we feel we should experience in a Sherlock Holmes story. In other words, is Holmes is a few feet away from that gun. That sloppiness that I don't, I'm sorry, but just reads wrong for the character. Well, one thing I, the thing that came to my mind immediately is like, you know, why would she be the first thing that he shoots? And when he grabs that gun, there's like at least 20 other possible people that'd be more effective for him to eliminate. I would think he would want to pop Sherlock Holmes, (laughs) who's, by the way, closer. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know he's realized she's betrayed him, but still, you know, it's, 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 it didn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, from. (laughs) I mean, they did have her yellow warning. Yeah. And so, maybe, but still, hmm. that's what I thought he was going to, when he picked it up, I thought he was going to be aiming at Sherlock. Well, I thought, because, like I said, I hadn't seen this, and so I didn't, Yeah, well, I hadn't seen it. I know I've seen it before, but mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it in so long. I thought that the way it was going to end was she was going to throw herself in front of the bullet mm-hmm. in order to save him, mm-hmm. but they put right. her too far away. Right, yeah. They, I mean, see, so now, you know... It is exactly what you said. What they could have and maybe should have done was let her play heroin white to the end and have her, if they had allowed her to be a body shield for Watson or Mm -hmm. Sherlock Mm -hmm. or Or even one of the members of the inner council. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Yeah, you're right. It would have Mm -hmm. given her a more heroic finish. Mm -hmm. If if they're going to have to kill the character. Yeah, you're right. right, You're right. You're right. Because, but because the way they did it, it's just like you said. There was really no reason for him to aim at her. She's the furthest way. Yeah. 
and they really didn't play it into his face that he was mm-hmm. wanted. He wasn't sitting there looking at her the whole time, mm-hmm. like if I could kill you, I would kill you, you know. I mean, so yeah, if they'd it, had him more visibly upset over the knowing right. that she's betrayed him and built that up to where maybe right. he's like half crazed like, with yeah, like exactly. maybe he really had affection for her or something, and you yeah. really had grown yeah. to care about her, and then she's found out he's finds out she's you know betrayed him then maybe that would make him irrational enough to just want to kill her or something but. And, and, and they could have sold it a little bit more that that was what was going through his mind if he'd said something yeah you yeah. know if he'd said something to mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but the it just it, it it reads as a little too callous mm-hmm. and like I say yeah I know the Hayes office it's basically assassination mm-hmm. of a girl who's fallen or a mm-hmm. woman who's fallen yeah it's it's we you know we the 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 sexual tres- trespass must must be punished. Right. Like I said, I knew there had to be, because this is a, unfortunately a fairly common trope, something that shows up again and again in movies from this period, mm-hmm. all the way up through the 50s, to the point where it becomes this thing where it's like, okay, yes, I understand that we must, you know, we must punish mm-hmm. the wicked, even if the wicked is actually really kind of the reason everything works out okay. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I wrote uh, Kat Ellinger and said, is there a term for this? Like, I, mm-hmm. I can't find it. She says, no, but there should be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went back and forth. I was like, there's got to be a term for this. Mm. There really has got to be a term for this. I will say this. Uh, there's been uh, there's been some talk in the past about how, uh, I mean, it was even said, and this is not accurate, that, you know, Kitty's killed, falls to the ground, and then Sherlock Holmes steps over her body to go, you know, to go look out mm. the window. And it's like, that's not actually what no, happens. No, it's not that. But right. I do feel there's still a little bit of a, there's a little bit of sloppiness they cover up mm. with some, uh, some post-dubbing there in that final scene. Where they have Nigel Bruce dub over, you know, I'll, well, I'll, I'll see, I'll see to her as everybody yeah, else like turns right, to right, go over yeah. <laughs> to, to look out the window at the, you know, at the yeah. the, the, the the planes and stuff. <laughs> I'll run away from the whore. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, Henry Daniel probably Daniel probably spit on her body as he walked past or something. You know. <laughs> <sighs> Thank God for this slut. Get her away from me. <laughs> well, I that's. I, I did like one thing I did like about this last scene was I did think it was kind of neat having the typical uh, mystery ending where all the suspects are gathered in one room, uh, have it be in these burned, oh, bombed out yeah. ruins was kind yeah, of a neat, you know, happens. kind of a, a neat yeah, take on that. Yeah, it was a that. cool. Yeah. Well, we just by by doing by, by having this discussion that I was so desperate to have, we just we just we, jumped, we just like jumped the... all the way over to the end. <laughs> yeah, we did. Uh, <laughs> That's how we roll on the national. This is how it works out, folks. Yes. Uh, I guess we could back up a little bit and talk about some of the other sure. uh, other things in there. It's just that I wanted to I wanted to bitch about Evelyn Anchors dying, <laughs> and it's, God damn it, it's not fair. Yeah. She's the reason this works out. It's yes. not Sherlock Holmes' yeah. badass deductive reasoning no, that no, causes no. this thing to unravel and the no. Nazis to get their asses kicked. Yeah. It's Evelyn Anchors' yeah. character. It's Kitty. Yeah. And it's like, God damn it, <laughs> she should fucking live to see that. She should yeah. live to see German. Boots kicking yeah. in Nazi Nazi fucking teeth. This yeah. is what she should be able to see now. Uh, just it, it, the more I think about it, the more mm. it gets under my skin. Such a feminist. <laughs> I, it's not right. It's just not fucking right. I mean, they should have instead had her say like, "I renounce sex and I'm just going to have babies from now on," you know, or something. Then it would make us feel better I, about. I her, you feel know, that the minister should probably marry me to who are you, sir? You yeah. Know, yeah. Think, Kitty. The cutthroats of the world menace us all. You can help stop this savagery. Yes, you, Kitty. It would take the police weeks, months perhaps, to find out a certain piece of information we must have. That's not so with you and your friends. You know every nook and corner of London. Get them to help us. We need their help. Your friends will become an army. You understand? 
secret, invisible and mighty. And you will be at their head, Giddy. You will be their leader. Grimes, do you know what Christopher means? Dugan, do you know? Dugan, listen to me. I ain't got no time to listen to you, girlie. But you gotta listen. Someone killed Gavin. I don't know who, but you gotta help me find out. Oh. All right, don't help me then. Cut your own throats, that's what you're doing. Help me or help the Nazis? Sure, the Nazis killed Gavin. They might be your friends protecting them the way you are. Don't you know that all the crimes they commit are being blamed on you? Well, they are, and I hope you hang for them. You can have it. As for me, I'm British, and I'm proud of it. Nobody's going to call me a Nazi and get away with it. Well, help me then. Tell me what Christopher means. But don't anybody know? It's got to mean something. Well, speak up if you know what it is. Let's have it. Don't mean a thing to me. You're going to creep in the corners all your life? You're going to sneak away at the very sight of a man like this and show him what coward you are? What are you afraid of? I'm not asking this for myself. England's at stake. You're England as much as anyone else's. Got no time to think about whose side we're on. There's only one side, England. No matter how high or how low we are. You, you, you and you. We're all on the same team. We've all got the same goal. Victory! Now we are. What do you want to know? Spread out all over London. But find out what Christopher means. We'll find out. No fear about that. Thank you, Kitty. Well done, my dear. Since we've already jumped to the end of this film and we've kind of skipped over big chunks of it, mm-hmm. I think it's probably a good idea to just kind of uh, to, to kind of talk about different things within the mm-hmm. film, the things that we that we kind of enjoy. And one of the things that I really do enjoy is even though this is not my favorite kind of Sherlock Holmes story, mm-hmm. in that and it has not, it has nothing to do with the period setting or anything mm-hmm. like that. What it has to do with is that, like I say, this is not Holmes doing deductive reasoning. This is Holmes essentially finding a way to kind of have the uh, Baker Street or regulars do his job for him. Yeah. And in this case, it's uh, this you know this network of thieves who fan mm-hmm. out, figure out what Christopher means, mm-hmm. and then are his backup when uh, shit starts to go south when mm-hmm. he needs help. And uh, it's Kitty who's doing the hard work that, let's be honest, I mean, we, we all like Basil Rathbone, but he ain't sexy enough to end up in Mead's bed, so, <laughs> all, right, all right, Yeah, well, significantly here, we're not using any of the Baker Street Irregulars, you know. It's not like there's no kids doing uh, shows. It's all just work at any point for him here. And These are all, you know. It really is kind of spy master versus spy master. Mm-hmm. I, I, I agree with you there. And that's, sure. That is what this really story is. It's Sherlock yeah. Holmes as a spy master on one side and and, and uh, the character who turns out to kind of be the mastermind, the mm-hmm. scar-faced, supposedly... Englishman. <laughs> yeah, because... Yeah, supposed Englishman who's actually a German who's been in, the, been in this country for 24 years, mm-hmm. which seems... Okay, let's discuss that aspect. Well, of well the mystery isn't really, I guess, the mystery is not who Lord. It's not, not Lord. I almost said Lord Hall. Not who. Uh, <laughs> not who the voice of terror is. Is how he's getting his information. That really becomes right. the real mystery. Is who's right. feeding him the information that he's using to plan. You know, right. the Germans using to plan all of these attacks. And it and it and it's 
Well, I, I will say this. One of the things that I forgot to mention earlier when we brought up the uh, the actual historical thing that this you know part of this story is based on the Lord Ha Ha character, the mm. the real Lord mm. Lord Ha Ha, is the the man. If you ever see a picture of him, he had a scar that stretched from the corner the right uh, corner of his mouth back along his cheek back mm. to I, and mm. I can't remember how he got the scar, but I do love that the character in this movie who is the one to one the mm. the the uh, the version of him in this film mm. turns out to be quote unquote the voice of terror also has a scar yeah yeah and I think that's something that is also in the film that's a detail placed in the film I think to make contemporary audiences you know really positive that we're, what we're talking about here oh he has a scar too mm-hmm. and so the, on the other side of his face and up, up on his you know mm-hmm. up on his forehead but still it's the same thing to a degree um to to ask a certain question um this is this is I'm sorry I can't leave it alone but about mm-hmm. the kitty character <laughs> do you think that Holmes because the is is Holmes using kitty or is Holmes just Giving her the information and putting her in place. See, we we don't we're missing certain scenes. Yes, right. We're missing right. the things, and the reason they're missing is they're obvious. We don't need to know once she shows up and ingratiates herself mm-hmm. and gets into Meat's house. We don't need the scene where Sherlock's going. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Mm-hmm. Go over here and do that, mm-hmm. and then we don't need that scene. Granted, you know that that's one of the neat things about a mystery like this is being able to make those. Narrative leaps is like any film. You got okay. Well, this is obvious. That's obvious. That's obvious. By not getting that, you also don't get if maybe she volunteered for it. And that's something where, see, it feels like if you wanted to argue that Holmes is manipulating Kitty, I don't think that that the movie plays that out. She's too strong a character, and the, the scene we're introduced to her in, she's such a strong character that it's impossible to think that she's being tricked into doing something she wouldn't want to do. That's obviously not what's happening mm. here. I think that what it boils down to is Holmes just lays out the facts for her. Hey, look, Nazis are responsible for this. For responsible for your de- yeah. the death of your husband, and that riles her up. She wants to get even, and that's the end of it. And, and remember, Sherlock Holmes is famous for. And I don't know if this really applies, but he's famous for being very, very blunt. He has no filters. Yeah. Now, as as Rathbone plays him, he's much more, you know, he's much he's much more reserved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. But kind of the flavor you get from the canon is that he really doesn't have many feelings, and he he's kind of blunt. And so you could I could see him saying. This is how it is. You know, you could do this and then leaving it up to her. So I, I can I can totally see mm. that a Sherlock Holmes character saying, because he wouldn't think there was anything, because he's not about the whole righteousness and things. So he wouldn't feel like he was, it wouldn't be a thing for him to question her morals if he, she decided to do it. She, he wouldn't mm-hmm. judge her mm-hmm. if she decided oh, to yeah, do well, it. Oh, yeah, well, this is this is something that I think the movie makes pretty plain is that Holmes is not judging her for what she's doing. No. I think if I think that to a degree, and this is why I wish she had survived, the feeling I get from their from their exchanges there in that final sequence of the movie is that Holmes respects her. Mm-hmm. And that is something that kind of makes her death that much more of a of a sore point for me because she's the hero of the story. Holmes is proud of her for doing what she did. Fully aware of what her of what this meant to her, and, um, on both sides of the coin, 
and then you know we still we still got to kill her. Thank you, Hazel. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought early on that just he's. I thought even before I knew who the character ends up being, uh, just I always thought I thought Holmes was a little. Uh, dismissive of Gavin when Gavin staggers in with his you know knife in his back and he's just kind of like you know uh, well, at least <laughs> you see the cop he tells the cop you know see to him come on Watson grab our coats and, and go and uh, yeah. you know, later find out these these kitties uh, you know I use air quotes husband meaning pimp in this case you know <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well I mean let, 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 let's let's be clear the movie makes it clear that they were married because because uh, when Holmes goes to that to, to that uh, that bar he refers to her as girlfriend and mm. one of the and, mm. and the guy who's mm. owns the place makes sure to correct him. Mm. So they're the, the movie's making it very clear mm. now they're married. Which I think is very interesting because one, I think there's a there's a good reason. Mm. If they're married, then th- there's no question about her desire for vengeance. Mm-hmm. And uh, also at the same time, you throw out questions of whether or not this is some this is some man that she knew who was possibly using her for some other ends, and therefore her motivations might be somewhat tainted by you know mm-hmm. a certain a certain happiness mm-hmm. that this guy's been stabbed in the back. This is not at all the case. I still think he was her pimp, but <laughs> well, if if so, if so. Uh, I mean that, that, that's a valid way to look at it if you can find anything within the story sure, to yeah, back it yeah, up. Yeah. But there's no, nothing there's nothing yeah. in the film that stacks mm-hmm. it up mm-hmm. because no one ever makes a. I mean, and believe me, with my with my feelings no, known no, about no, the way that I'm would, looking for those it, kind of t- yeah. those clues. Now it would not surprise me if at some point he was originally going to be, and then they like, no, no, we better make him her maybe, husband. No, that's, you know, maybe, that's like, maybe you know, so. Make it a little oh. more. Let's not go that far down that. Yeah, I, can, down that yeah. yeah I can definitely see that. <laughs> well, and but you know, like you said, if he he was a pimp, then she would really not have any motivation. Well, to maybe or maybe not. Mm-hmm. That's that, and see, that's one of the things that you might get that that kind of nuanced and and tricky emotional. <sighs> Pimps aren't always thought of as villains by the women who are pimped by them. For that matter, they could be married and he could still be... I mean, that could be, that could be yeah. how they used to survive, you know. That could be exactly. how they are, are, you know, surviving in this underworld here, you know. I got to tell you, I had no idea I was gonna, I was gonna have this conversation go <laughs> this, this it's, far. It's, it's unseemly, isn't it? It's, 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 uh... <laughs> it's unseemly. Perhaps you should wrap it up, and I could, yes. I could perhaps edit all of it out. <laughs> please do, please except do. the parts that make me sound like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Run this episode by the Hayes office, and then, we'll, 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 well, then <laughs> trust me, half of what I've said is gonna get chopped right. Beat. Hey, hello, goodbye. <laughs> Let's talk about, there's at least one more aspect of this film that I'd like to talk about just briefly, and it is one that we've already touched on, which is the idea that uh, the uh, the British Army assigns a driver to Holmes and Watson, who is a, uh, a, a female uh, a female uh, volunteer named, uh, who's played by Hilary Brooke, who does show up in two more of these movies later on, uh, most, uh, most famously in uh, The One in Green. Mm-hmm. Man, there's almost no way in the world that that character wasn't meant to be a little bit more imp- more important. I sure to the was story. expecting more of that character, something and more significant. And who assigned her as the driver? Someone when they when they, he's talking to um, Watson and and you know when and oh he about, he sa- he says who told him that because, right. because Holmes plays a little joke on Watson by. By saying, uh, when we walk out this door, I think I, I feel right. that we're go- I feel that we're going to be approached by a young mm-hmm. woman, and, and, and you know, 
what they walk you know, Watson's like, yeah, what are you talking about? They walk outside and this woman walks up and explains that she's gonna be their driver. And Watson's completely befuddled and he, until he goes, well, you know, so-and-so told me that they were assigning this woman to us so we would have someone driving us around. Because at the, when I, I, I just got that part and I couldn't remember who assigned her. I can't remember who told him that too. And it's not necessarily that this person assigned her. It's that the name he uses to say, this is the person who gave me the information. And right. I can't remember which one of the members of the inner council that was that said it. So yeah. Because so. I was thinking that she was a spy herself and was watching Sherlock for... And she could have been. That, that That's the thing about it. Is, and, mm-hmm. and here's the thing. I I couldn't find anything about this. and It's possible this has happened. There's a, There's been a whole series of publications of original scripts for uh, Universal Monster movies of the 30s and 40s. Lots of different things of that nature. And that's how you find out all these different scenes and all these different movies that have been trimmed out over time mm-hmm. or that were trimmed out to kind of keep the movie short or because they decided to do away with a subplot here, there, or yon or to kind of just, you know, keep the film a little bit tighter and take the story down a notch or two. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that this film's script has ever been published in that way so that you could actually get a look at the shooting script and find yeah, out yeah, no, what got shot yeah. and then pulled out. Yeah. Because it sure does seem like they wasted a really good actor. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. For, yeah. for a nothing role. Yeah. And so it just, like I say, the few times we see her, well, let's put it this way. When she's introduced, the, she, the reason that they keep her is because it's a nice bit, it's a nice bit of little comedy that they introduce the character and Holmes uses it as kind of a little joke to like needle his buddy. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he, he play he plays around with Watson with it. Right. Okay. The second time we see the character, if you watch the film carefully, she's we see her, but the reason they seem to... In other words, they could have edited out the second time that we see the Hillary Brooke character yeah. completely, except that it would have been impossible to edit around the way the, the scene was shot mm-hmm. without having a reference to her because the, the same line of dialogue goes right into the first person they meet... Mm-hmm. on the street as they're going to the Christopher Dock. Yeah. So in other words, the 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 way the structure of the way the 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 subsequent scene was shot forced them to keep just a little bit of Hillary Brooks character uh kind of in the shadows, kind of watching them from afar. Mm-hmm. So if they could have, they might have trimmed that out of there, but it would have been really sloppy and it would have been yeah. a, it would have made for a really awkward edit and it wouldn't have made any sense. It would have sounded terrible. Yeah. And then the last time you see her, it's such a brief, it, it, it's like mm-hmm. the only meaty scene that she really has where they're talking, and that's it. Yeah. And it seems to me like maybe, and what you're alluding to, Beth, is possibly, man, I, this, is a, this is a reason to want to get a look at the script. Was the character put in place by someone who was using her to keep tabs on them? See, that's a real possibility. Yeah. And whoever it was who she might have been reporting to, that could have like amped up some of the the shades of gray or the possible, yeah. you know, toss, you know, uh, casting aspersions on one character and possibly, you know, amping up the red herring aspect of one character or another or leading a little giving us a little breadcrumb trail to the man who actually turns out to be the voice of terror. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. 
and at the end you get the uh, kind of a little stinger where it's obvious that the Prime Minister has called and said, oh, yes, yeah. you will go with Sherlock Holmes wherever he tells you to well, yeah. go. That's it. They, don't, they don't say who it is. Mm. It's, it's when uh, they're trying to make the decision on uh, whether to believe what the Voice of Terror has said because for the first time the Voice of Terror's broadcast says... This is all going to happen tomorrow. And we're right. going to, you know, yeah, da 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 da. Right. And Holmes points out to the council yeah. while they're all listening to it is like, this is the first time hmm. it hasn't been about what's happening right now. Yeah. So he's trying to convince us what you think is true, which is that this is all going to happen in a certain place on the, on the coast, mm-hmm. which means that it's definitely not happening there. Mm-hmm. And of course, at, you know, later on we find out that he's got uh, other bits of information directly from Kitty that lets him know that's you know yeah this is all bullshit that it's happening at a different place on the coast. Yeah. And so he's fighting, he's verbally fighting with them because they're convinced. No, 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 you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. This is very obvious. We need to do this. And the phone rings, and it's picked up. They listen to who it is. They say yes, sir. They hang the phone up and they go. We've got to do what Holmes says. <laughs> follow. We're going to follow Holmes. And then Beth turns to me. She goes, well, who, who was that? I said, there's only one person who could tell these people what to do and have them hang the phone up and go, okay, yes, sir. And that's the prime minister. Yeah. There's nobody else. And that could be, it could be on the end of the phone. That's the Winston bull, Churchill going. Himself, man. Yeah, it's Winston yeah. Churchill going, do what Holmes says. Which also, <laughs> that's the only point in the movie where we get the slightest indication that Holmes has got a direct pipeline to the prime minister. Yeah. Which, Any, anything that goes from him directly to the prime minister is now possible. And so another th- idea I had was that maybe the Hillary Brooke char- character was character was kind of a bodyguard reporting element <laughs> yeah. up to the next level. Oh, maybe. she could. Oh, you mean she could have been she Churchill's spy? Mm-hmm. Ah, that would have been fun. That's an interesting concept. See, and see, this is why I would like to know. Yeah. Because I, just, I would like to get a look at the shooting script to find out what yeah. that character was supposed to be. Because yeah, you're right. That's, that's something I didn't even thought of. Yeah. Because I just assumed. Yeah, it could be either way. You're right. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that at all. That's yeah. Cool. I like that idea. I like that idea better than the other idea. But until somebody, <laughs> people. Have they published this script and I just can't find it? Is that the problem? Have I not searched the internet proper way? Somebody help me. Your Google foo is weak. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the uh, That's an interesting idea. Now I can't get that out of my head. But uh, I will say that uh, it does appear that the movie ends. I mean, we, we have the the, the, the the plot is foiled. Mm-hmm. And um, the film closes with Holmes paying tribute to Kitty and he makes this uh, this this neat speech, which is lifted directly from the last the, bow, yeah. which is his last bow of the story, which is great because it is a great last speech. It's 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 a great little piece, and it is apparent. It's directly out of the story. Mm-hmm. It is, mm-hmm. and it's perfectly. It's perfectly. Once again, it's one of those perfect things where you just go <sighs> choosing that story that was a prelude to the involvement in World War One as this, which is right at the beginning of. Everybody's the you know the Allies' involvement in World War Two is is really smart because the word the words the exact words work in both instances. Mm-hmm. It really does. That is true. And I'm kind of curious. Anybody watching this film that would that 
would be savvy enough to know that that's where that dialogue came from. If if there was a large portion of the inf- of the of the audience that knew that, yeah, wouldn't that be depressing as hell? <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. The yeah. dialogue itself, mm. taken yeah. taken uh-huh. for what it is, uh-huh. is very rousing. It is a mm. it's very much a you know let's you know pull together and do our part kind of patriotic speech. But the fact that this exact speech mm. was originally written just before the last right. giant war, yeah, yeah. Sure. I do wonder if yeah. there might be a, a savvy yeah. part of the audience that might be going, shit, we're going to have to read this again in about 25 more years? <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, wasn't the world, isn't it World War One that they always referred to as the war to end all wars at the time? It was, yeah. you know, it was like yeah. wrong, you know? So, yeah, that was, so yeah, there's <laughs> You're that part. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, sorry. <laughs> No, you're right. I mean, it's it's you know we're we're doomed to repeat. Well, yeah. I mean, we've finally managed to find a way to not have the Germans fuck shit up again. Yeah, but you know, yeah. who who who's next? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Mm-hmm. We're eating our own now. Yeah. <laughs> Nevertheless, I sometimes have a little bit of trouble with the Watson character. Oh, I'm well, glad you're bringing that up. Go that's ahead. a give, yeah, that's a pretty that's, standard. Yeah. Yeah, but go ahead and give your your thoughts. Because I know that he was a doctor and a medical man. Mm-hmm. Military, and, military man. And also yeah. military. So he couldn't have been completely blundering. Right. And so I, I love, is it, it's Nigel Bruce, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love him. I think he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. But I think they had him, sometimes he played it a little too bumbling. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes I think the doctor should be but but I will say that when he starts doing his doctoring thing, he he does assert himself and come, come more into he it. He does seem to snap into focus. Yeah. Right, exactly. But what I love about some of the more pastiche is that sometimes you get a strong Watson character. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I kind of like that because I think it sometimes gives a better fool to the actual Sherlock. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I, when, you know, I know we all hold, everybody holds it rightly so. The gold standard is the Jeremy Brett, you know, I mean, as far as the true depiction of, the most accurate depiction oh, of the adaptation that. of the original stories, you know, is mm-hmm. the Granada series, you know, uh, uh, that had Jeremy, Started, yeah, in the Jeremy Brett, first had David Burke as Watson and then had uh, Edward Hardwick as, uh, as Watson. Uh, because people, when that came out, people, you know, especially Sherlock Holmes fans are saying, finally, we get an intelligent Watson, you know, get a you know Watson like we always knew that he was. That it's that it's not that he's yeah. a bumbling oaf. Is he's a very intelligent man. It's just that he's driven more by his heart than Holmes yes. is. And but yes. you know, the the idea is that Holmes would never have somebody around him who wasn't at least in, 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 intelligent enough to understand why what Holmes does right. is so brilliant. Mm-hmm. But you know, so so that's what's caused the Nigel Bruce interpretation. Uh, to be more and more derided as the years has gone on, you know. Uh, well, he's think, he's not given a lot of opportunity to be a buffoon in this story. Thank God. Right now, I will say in the in the first two Sherlock Holmes films, the two for Fox, he actually has some moments, you know, where he's a little more astute. You know, where he's a little more on top of things. Of course, in Hound Baskervilles, he has to be because he carries there's some such a large portion of the story where Holmes yeah, is not, not in there. it. Mm-hmm. But seeing those two films and watching this, um, I'm kind of becoming a little more. I'm softening a little bit more again to to what they were trying to do with with Bruce's uh, portrayal of Watson. I totally get it that it's not really. I know why it's not totally satisfying. I mean, I personally prefer a more intelligent, more capable Watson too. But yeah. I think that they at least convey. I think there's good chemistry between Basil Rathbone yes, and Andrew Bruce, and I think that they good. convey the warmth and the affection between the two characters to make you think that well, 
it isn't necessarily for one thing this Basil Rathbone's portrayal of Sherlock Holmes is not as as kind of antisocial and, and robotic as we've talked about exactly. like the the Holmes and the stories and, and other sometimes other like the Benedict Cumberbatch portrayal can be where he's almost socially inept you know because he's just so well, he's, he's not he's not the aloof character that he's often portrayed in the stories right which is which which warms him a little bit gives him yeah. a little bit softer yeah. edge so I think with Rath so the way Rathbone plays him I think it makes it a little more. It carries it across a little bit more that maybe, you know, they really are generally friends. He just generally has an affection for this man. And um, also, I think a lot of it, too, comes down to Hollywood was so much about the the teams at that point, the opposites. Yes. If you're going to have the teams, you've got well, to make them severe remember, opposites. Remember why, remember why you had to do that. Remember why a team is good in a film, whereas mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be so on the printed page. It's the it's 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 the age-old term that you hear more and more the more you mm-hmm. talk about actors, mm-hmm. which is... When a story is a two-hander, mm-hmm. what that means is that you've at least got two characters who are on semi-equal footing because then you can have dialogue that explains shit to the audience. <laughs> sure. Because on the printed page, there's a dozen ways to present information. Get inside a character's head. Exactly. Or you can Depending on what you, what uh, point, uh, what uh, perspective you take, what POV you take, but if you have two characters, then they are going to be able to talk and ingratiate themselves to the audience while imparting info. And I don't. I like him. I like mm-hmm. the way he does it. But, but, but I think you're right. He is the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and he is. You know, he has, he also is the is the he has a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Sherlock really didn't have mm-hmm. much of a sense of humor. Now yeah, the way right. that that Basil portrays him, he has a little bit mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm sense of humor than some of the people mm. that betrayed him. Yeah, but when he's when he's at his moments when he softens the most is when he's amused or, you know, right, or has exactly. an affectionate moment with, with his, his appreciation of, of, of Watson's friendship. And right. yeah, I think we'll all always appreciate the Watson as he's betrayed in, in, in some other more modern, you know, adaptations that, that, you know, portray him maybe as, as, as not quite as buffoonish, but but I've seen these again after so many years and I'm like, okay, I'm a, I'm I'm not I'm not quite I'm, I'm kinda of a little more okay with Nigel Bruce than I thought I would be coming yeah, back to him. me too. Hello, what's this? General J. Lawford, KCB DSO, and Captain Roland Shaw, MC, who today narrowly escaped being struck by a falling wall in a bombed area. Lawford and Shaw by a falling... Holmes, you don't think that... It was not an accident. Good heavens. Holmes, that sinister-looking fellow, what's his name? Mead. If only he hadn't got away. Yes, difficult as it was, I managed to let him escape. You let him escape, but great Scott, man. He was about to kill us. He may even yet. I don't understand you, Holmes. It's my theory if this chap Mead is the arch-criminal, that he's behind the whole thing. You're absolutely right, Watson. <laughs> except for one thing. Well, I'm wrong. Have you observed that a highly secret military plan is thwarted by each of these disasters? Yes, I have. Now that you mention it. Watson. There's a leak. A leak? You mean in the council? But Holmes, that's impossible. Anything is possible until proved otherwise. See, who are in the council? Lawford and Shaw? They're above suspicion. Their record proves that. Anyhow, they were attacked. Unsuccessfully. Prentice? Would he kill his own son? Doesn't seem likely. And yet the boy is dead. Byron, of course, brought you into the case. So it's quite obvious that he wants it solved. Most patriotic of Sir Barham. He's a great fellow. Paid wing three quarter for the school my last term, so I can vouch for him. Well, before we wrap this up, let's get to Critics Corner. It's always fun to delve into the <laughs> contemporary reviews of the mm-hmm. film. But 
and uh, see just exactly what this film was thought of at the time and uh, how well some of these comments may have mm-hmm. aged. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let you down easy. No, no Bosley. No Bosley. Oh, man. No Bosley, brother. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. But I like this. Uh, from Kate Cameron, New York Daily News. September 19th, 1942. The picture is competently directed by John Rawlings, who has created an atmosphere of suspense and terror. Rathbone and Bruce are an ideal team for the Holmes and Watson roles. Uh, quick aside, John Rawlings, the guy who directed this, uh, was pretty good at keeping a movie uh, a movie moving. Uh, before this, he'd done a couple of the Dick Tracy movies. Yeah. Or after this. Wait a minute. Before or after. He did a couple of the Dick Tracy movies. And he uh, also co-directed, along with Ford BB, a couple of serials. So well, yeah, keeping shit moving is important. I was yeah. going to say, looking at his kind of overall, uh, it seems like most of his, or the thing he worked in most was seemed to be adventure films, action yeah. adventure films. Yeah. seems like that was kind of his forte. Which makes him a, a pretty a pretty good choice for this. But I do say that, you know, Roy Neal mm-hmm. picked up the, the mm-hmm. mantle and directed all the rest of this. Did, he kind of took mm-hmm. over production of the entire mm-hmm. rest of this series. And... Uh, by having that much control over it, I think that uh, the I, I like uh, I like. Before we get to my comments on on uh, what I would rate this, I would say that I, I do prefer those films. But Rollins does a good job here, so I can understand wanting to point out that uh, he does a good job handling this, especially when you take into account how beautiful the film looks. Yeah. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter, September 4th, 1942. John Rollins maintains the air of excitement in his direction, a first-rate job. The mood of the piece is enormously aided by the artful photography of Woody Bridell in an especially low-key. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. The photography yeah. is phenomenal. In this mm-hmm. film. New York Post, September 1942. Signed by Archie Winston. Oh, I'm sorry, Winston. Holmes is so up to the minute that he no longer wears his peaked cap. Less a conflict than a rat hunt with a foregone conclusion. It is to be feared that neither the Holmes series nor the war effort are greatly aided by this ambitious but ineffective attempt to merge the two. <laughs> so, mixed there, maybe. There's that fun scene where Holmes starts to take his deerstalker. And, yeah. And I, I thought that was kind of neat that Nigel Bruce, that at least even at that time, was kind of a nod to the fact that Holmes didn't really wear that night stalk, no. the new deerstalker because, because, you know, but some portrayals of him. Well, on the stage, Some actors, they would wear stage, it all the time. Yeah. It's like, no, that really literally was supposed to be used just for outdoors. Yeah, the deerstalker <laughs> is something you wore in the country. <laughs> the the, the Inverness Cape, yeah. the same thing. Right, it's yeah. like these things that became very much the staple of the yeah. stage portrayals of Sherlock Holmes and then slowly began to translate into the, into the screen portrayals yeah. as well. It, that was part of uh, the German film that was so good. Was it, That was what marked him as yeah. Sherlock yeah. Holmes. Was that he By dressing that way. Yeah. Yeah. He had that hat and that cape, and he carried a violin case. Yep, yep. the violin case was a, was, was, was a big clue to people that he, sure, he, he must be Sherlock Holmes. The New York Sun, September 1942, Eileen Creelman. What a name. Creelman. Creelman. The plot cannot be taken too seriously in spite of director John Rollins' use of striking photography and relating it. The screenplay is decidedly dated. Decidedly dated. In 1940. In 1942. The Rialto thriller is too far from reality to keep up suspense. So, eh, not really that big. You know. From Variety, September 9th, 1942, Rathbone carries the Sherlock Holmes role in great style, getting able assistance from the flustery Bruce as Dr. Watson. Okay. The film daily, uh, September 16th, 1942. 
Though routine and undistinguished, this melodrama has a fair amount of thrilling action and much speed. The acting is generally good. Well, you know, mm-hmm. damn it with faint praise, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, Troy, yes. uh, on the one to ten scale, what do you what do you give Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror? Okay, I gave it a six. Okay, um, but it's a fond six. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I liked it a little more the second time. I think I saw it because first time through, I'm, I'm kind of feeling, you know, a little little. Little way too heavily in the propaganda, not quite as much mystery. I'm looking for little, more little mystery, you know, looking that, for something yeah. a little more effective mystery. Once I've known that's once I know that's the case, spinning through it a second time, I start watching and appreciating, you know, it for what it is. Exactly. Um, you know, I like to, I actually kind of like the voice over the radio thing because it kind of made, gave it to oh, me, I like kinda, it a lot. It gave me kind of a serial feel to it. It kind of felt to me like the old yep. serial villains, you know, well, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly that. the kind of thing. As soon as I found out the director uh, had worked in, uh, in uh, serials, it made mm. sense to me because that's exactly the way you would get you hit the ground running in mm. a serial. It's like impart all this information quickly. We have that we have that map with the shadow with the with the shadow of the uh, the the uh, the antenna the, the the antenna stretching across the the map, giving you the impression of what's going on. We have mm. all the those shot yeah, after exactly. shot after shot of all these just mm. normal people who are like eating their lunch or yeah. at work or whatever with the radio playing. Mm. They can hear you know they can hear mm. it wherever they are, and it mm. becomes this kind of overwhelm. Yeah, it's it's a really well done thing, yeah. and it does feel like. The the kind of thing where you got to hit the ground running, impart all this information, get a sense mm-hmm. of how many people are being affected by it, and how they're hearing, mm-hmm. it, and how it's how it's coming across to the general populace. It's well done stuff. Yeah, know? and I really I did love the photography, the lighting. I think is you know I appreciated that even again the second time through. You know uh, uh, how effective that was, and you know and even the even the 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 kind of the raw rawing speeches. I mean. Some of the very best films of that decade had that in there. You know, I mean, listen, oh, yeah. I mean, I think one of the great greatest films of all time and. I think really probably the greatest script ever written, at least as far as dialogue, Casablanca. Well, you know, I thought had, you were going to say the great Gildersleeve, but okay. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> well, yes, Casablanca even has the great scene where they all start, you know, oh, yeah. singing the French, you know, well, Marcel, you know, yeah, there. The Marcier, and that. Yeah. So, so even even the greatest films, you know, uh, were I mean, Casablanca only got made because it's a war, war because it was a wartime propaganda film. So, yep. so yeah, so you can't hold that too. Too heavily against you know well, any, I mean, any film from that time. I mean, it was on the world's. It was kind of on people's minds, you know. At well, that time. just because it's wartime propaganda film doesn't mean it can't be art. No, and it was, and, and like I said, so like I said, I I I, I did you know, I, I gave it a six, but it, it was it was a film that I did enjoy watching. Cool, cool, Beth. Uh, what, where do you fall on the one to ten scale, or do you even think in those terms? You didn't tell me. I oh, a, I'm sorry. What you've listened to a one so, would be. Uh, you never so, no, I was going to participate. A, a one on the one to ten scale would be sucks the devil's Johnson. <laughs> ten would be my God. It's I've full of stars. God, yeah, yes, I've seen exactly. God and it's full of stars. <laughs> so you know. Um, it to me did not fulfill my Sherlockian. Mm-hmm need mm-hmm. poor deductive reasoning mm-hmm. okay. and so it to me it's just a spy mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. and so for Sherlock Holmes mo- movies on my Sherlock Holmes scale this is probably no better than five or six because okay. I it's mm-hmm. just to me mm-hmm. it's great it's beautiful I like the movie mm-hmm. yeah I, I'm, I'm just basing my scale my scale on my Sherlock Holmes so you're falling somewhere in the five to six category yeah. makes sense yeah 
Uh, I, I once again I go with a six, mm. and a lot of that boils down to uh, if, if, for instance, I was coming to this entire series cold, mm. I might rate it a little bit higher mm. because of the joy I get from watching the characters, mm. uh, enjoying the lighting, uh, mm. getting a big kick out of uh, the the, the, the the skill with which the the movie is made, things mm. of that nature. Uh, but honestly, having watched and rewatched this entire series of films over over the past fifteen or so years. Uh, I know that this is uh, good, but not great. Mm-hmm. There are much better films in this series down the road. Mm-hmm. There are movies that are uh, there's there's at least one that I that my memory tells me is weaker than this. Mm-hmm. But this is still a pretty good movie, so I end up giving it about a six. Mm-hmm. It's a firm six. It's a it's a film that I enjoy and that I have returned to multiple times. Mm-hmm. So it's a six where the the qualities within it the the actors especially the ca- the cast especially yeah. the cast is the is the reason to rewatch this film because yeah. there's not a weak link in the entire thing and the fact that they could cast Hillary Brooke and then chop her mostly out of the movie tells you they'd stacked this deck pretty effectively mm-hmm. so uh yeah about a 6 so cool it is beautiful though it's, no, yeah, it's it sure gorgeous is. gorgeous movie and you've got the blu-ray right yeah no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did not. Oh, I yeah, wanted to, movie? but the, yeah, the price was just a little past what I could justify. Okay. Uh, so I got the DVD, but still looks great, though. Yeah, yeah. Still awesome. I've, I've still got those original DVDs, and they still, like I say, they still just look absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. But there you go, folks. Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror from 1942. We all enjoy it, but uh, like I say, we also all know that there are better films in this series just down the road. Whew. How many more are there of these? Five or six? I six. was say... Uh, Seven? Gosh, I thought it was more than that. Uh, Could be. I can't remember. Didn't he make... Oh, no. There are like didn't 12 he make like these 12, He made 12 altogether, but oh, I don't know if that's God, counting. That's right. I don't know if no, it's no, just no, the universal. No, no, you're right. Or There's 12 of these things. Wow, yeah. Okay, Maybe I was thinking 11 or 12. I just didn't know I if that counted the two Fox films or if it's strictly if we still have 11. I think I may have been thinking they had it for seven years. It's like, they can do more than one movie a year, dumbass. Uh, sometimes I freak out and forget. Well, folks... Hold on to yourself. We'll uh, take a quick break. Come back. We've got uh, one piece of mail that we want to read out from a friend of ours. And uh, then we will tell you what Troy and I will be up to on the both the Nashy cast and uh, the bloody pit here the next time we reconvene to record for you. So hang on. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ben from the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, which is done by myself, my sister, and my father, where the genre of the movie is decided by the cast of a die. The categories are horror, drama, comedy, action, sci-fi and fantasy, animation, and musical. Also on occasion, we'll have a special episode dedicated to conversations with creators, directors, actors involved in the production of movies. Join us and see what movie we pick next. All right, we're going to wrap this thing up now. We've got one piece of uh, email here from our buddy Matthew that we'd like to get to because he's got uh, some information that some of you who live in the Pennsylvania area might be interested in. I I can tell you right now, I'm afraid I am going to mispronounce some of the place names here Mm. because, well, first of all, that's what I do. (laughs) And second of all, until I hear it pronounced, proper names are always a mystery to me. Yeah, well, all the northern names are mysteries to us uh, us down here in the south. (laughs) I mean, how many years did I call you toy before I got it right? There's an R in that word, right? There's an R. Took me, I mean, what, like 10 years? Jesus. All right, let's take a look at this email. He says, hope you are all doing well. Well, he says, actually, hope we are all doing well, which is weird because he's he's hoping that he's... Anyway, Matthew, you're confusing me. Anyway, just wanted to spread the word that on April the 9th and the 10th, 
the Mahoning Drive-In Theater out in Layton, Pennsylvania. Okay, Layton or Layton? I think it's Layton. We'll be running screenings of both the original Blob from 1958 and the really underrated 1988 remake in association with the Colonial Theater in Phoenixville. The Colonial, of course, is the actual theater that was used in the original film and in pre-pandemic times used to host their annual Blob Fest every May. Tickets are relatively affordable, and because this is a drive-in outfit, they can ensure that social distancing protocols are being met. Most importantly... Proceeds from this screening will go to the Colonial Theater's ongoing fundraising efforts to ensure their ability to survive what are uh, foobar times for small independent film houses. I have included a link in the email below. Any B-movie or cult movie fan in the area might want to check this out. I will include this link in the show notes, folks. And uh, thank you, Matthew, for letting us all know about this. If we lived closer, I would love to do that because... I, uh, and this, uh, I don't know how radical a statement this might be. I absolutely love the, the remake. I think the I remake it's is phenomenal. Very, very well done. It really is. And I've heard about Blobfest for years. You know, yeah. it's, that's, I know one of the things I would that's love ne- to go to this. I know one of the things that's neat about it is they have a guy who has a piece of the actual blob, you know, yeah. that they used in the film. They always brings it and they always, uh, they always, uh, show, uh, have a, a running out of the theater. They stage, they a, stage, it, yeah. stage a running out of the theater with all the attendees there, you know, from, from when the blob attacks the theater. So, yeah. I just, yeah. I just, uh, it was just a few months ago. I finally showed you the remake of the blob, Beth. That's right. Yeah. You you had never seen that before. Nope. Mm-hmm. Fun movie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. It's it's it really I really kind of prefer the remake to the mm-hmm. original. Yeah, I, yeah, I like yeah, them both. Don't yeah, right. Wrong, but no, but I think it's it is overall a better film. The second one. So well, it is it is the uh, it's the capper to the trio of of brilliant remakes made in the nineteen eighties. Mm-hmm. The thing, the fly, and the blob. Yeah. It's like yeah. you know they just that's that's how remakes should be done. Yeah, right there. Ones, they really were. If you're gonna do them, do them like that. Yeah. Uh, well, folks, we want to uh, let you know that uh, Beth will be joining us for future Sherlock Holmes films. Mm-hmm. She is the uh, mm-hmm. the Sherlock Holmes aficionado. She's the one who reads Holmes stories constantly. Uh, by the way, I am very envious uh, slash angered by the speed with which she can read, period. <laughs> her uh, her ability to retain this stuff drives me batshit, too. She, read, <laughs> she reads as if each page takes her five or ten seconds yeah. and then is able to relate. Oh, well, this one was... Eh, it's kind of like plot the, was kind of yeah. obvious. And, she does it kind of like the aliens of the sideways where they just touch it to, touches it to her forehead, you know, like that, and you know, and then it's and, and then it, you know, it's obvious. <laughs> the, the, the book the, touches the book to her forehead. And or or Vincent it. Price's egghead character from Batman. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Oh wait, wait, was, was, was it, it was what was the book? It was Roddy McDowell's bookworm character. Is that was it? Was that maybe that was maybe was that, that Roddy McDowell who, who like just absorbed? He was just like, flipped the pages. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was God. I don't remember. Anymore. I don't either. I don't God, either. It's deteriorating <laughs> brain cells and not having watched that particular stuff in forever. But Beth, I want to thank you very much yeah. for joining us for this because it's fun having you here. Yeah, it, it, it really is. You're not downstairs, you know, worried that we're doing something illegal up here. Or making actually. noise. And <laughs> <laughs> Rod gritting his teeth. You're, yeah, you're good at making noise downstairs and making me wonder. Turn the blunder off. Yeah, is, right. it keeping that, is, it, is it picking that up? What are you doing, are you doing down there? Are you beating rats with a fucking <laughs> stick? Stop. Oh, hey, by the way, I just want to say, too, uh, um, by the time every time this episode's released, uh, um, or just briefly before we did this recording, uh, we were nominated again in the Rondo Awards, the Rondo, Cla- Rondo Classic Horror Awards. Uh, second time we've actually had a commentary nominated. I think we were oh, first, first nominated for the first Paul Nashie box set. I think our commentary for Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll was nominated for that one. 
And uh, now we're nominated for our Panic Beats audio commentary. Although uh, he does, if you read the description, he kind of makes it plain that, you know, it's it's kind of a nomination for, for the, a team or for a for, for everything yeah. that we kind of did that year, yeah, that would mean yeah. that this past year, uh, I, I would, I, like I say, I kind of think that means also our, our Beast of the Magic Sword yeah. commentary is kind of rooked in there. And I'm yeah. really proud of both of those tracks, mm-hmm. and it's always wonderful to be nominated uh, yeah. in these categories. We're, we're nominated for uh, the Nashi Cast again yeah. as, a, as a podcast right. under the uh, oh darn, best multimedia mm-hmm. site. So that, that's how they categorize a podcast. But under commentators, you can vote for two different. Uh, you have two different votes, so you can you can vote for us, and then vote for somebody else. Because trust me, the list of worthy people mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. vote for on that list, it's a tough freaking choice. No, it is I mean, absolutely. My goodness, there's some fantastic people doing commentary tracks these days, and it's. But we, as always, we thank the Rondo Awards. They they are the Oscars for horror movie fans and monster kids. You know, so so we're always glad to be nominated and get appreciated there. But we nice. want to win. Yeah, right. <laughs> my, my, the fire has been lit under me again. It's like you know, I, for a few years there, it was just we were getting nominated, and it's always a bridesmaid's never a bride. And it's just you know, it's one of those things where it's when I got that comment. It's when I got that comment directly from from Sam Irvin when he's just like, always a bridesmaid, never a bride. And I'm like, you're not the first one to tell me that, Sam. You're not, buddy. But we're not really. We're not voting for Mark anymore because he's got enough. No, no, no. Mark Maddox, you know, you no longer get any votes. Yeah, that's right. He is. Yeah, I got, I got to get him back on the podcast. I've been, I've been remiss. I have got to get Mark back on the show because I, 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 I'm feeling. He, I love, I love messing with Mark so much. And when I go for a long period of time and I'm not able to do it, I, I feel as if there's a part of my life that's just missing. It's, it's like you're missing a tooth and you keep sticking your tongue in there and going, "Damn it, man! There's got to be something there." Well, for me, that is just fucking with Mark. Well, you haven't been able to to fight with him at conventions, you know. Either, I know. You know so yeah, that sucks. It'll be next year before we can do that. I'm yeah. Like, Ugh. yeah. God, they I'm are close. horrible together, man. No, when I know. Talking, <laughs> believe me, I know. It's terrible. It's just... Oh, I, I never get a Monster Bash. They were doing a podcast, and I sort of had to you know, disappear for a while while they got it done. So I was gone for a couple <laughs> hours and came back, see if they were finished, and... I listened to the door and I thought I was going to have to call security, honestly, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the cussing ratio. Yeah. Oh, my God. They call, call each other some really... Well, until until we descend into just calling each other assholes, honestly, it's, <laughs> it's all okay, I promise you. There's been no actual violence that's broken the skin yet. <laughs> Notice how I couched those phrases very carefully. Yes, indeed. But, people, we'd like to thank you very much. Whether you vote for us in the rondos or not please vote for us <laughs> we still love you we thank you for listening to the show we thank you for coming here and giving us your time and attention and we'd like to point out that the next time troy and i sit down for well the next time actually we record we'll be recording for the uh, for the nashi cast our next episode of the nashi cast we've been i mean i feel feel kind of like we're 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 doing some wild shit here, dude. Because uh, we're really firing on all cylinders in this Nashi Cast thing. Because we had the first first episode of this year, we had Sam back on talking mm-hmm. about yeah. uh, devil mm-hmm. movies mm-hmm. with Paul Nashi, and then we finally found a way to cover Shadows of Blood, which I honestly never thought we were going to do. And damn, <laughs> we didn't if want we to. I know, I, unfortunately, <laughs> of course, and you might know it's getting the biggest response of any of our shows. You know, because, I know, I know. People are like, oh my god, they covered Shadows of Blood. <laughs> And now we've got our hands on another fan-subbed, rare-as-can-be, hard-to-see Paul Nashie film that we know immediately will make people realize that they're not going to be... It's not going to be easy to see this movie, folks. But we're, we've got one from the 70s. 
one that we've not seen before, one that is we, this, yeah. this is going to be a new discovery as far as we're concerned. But right. we're very excited about this because I, I believe Nashi had a hand in the screenplay, yeah. Yeah. at least the screen story, if not the mm. finished script. Uh-huh. And uh, the title of it is... All the Screams of Silence. Which is a nonsensical title. Yes, it is. It is. That means zippo. <laughs> it means nothing. It's like the pillow of death. <laughs> well, that's... <laughs> That, that's an inner sanctum film. Yeah, yeah right. We'll be oh, getting yeah. to that one someday. We will eventually get to that one. This is true. So if you want to join us over in the Nashi cast for the next film that we'll cover over there, it will be something you have to seek out on the yeah. special antenna. And we, seek it yeah. out if you wish. And we are so glad that Shadows of Blood will not be the last Nashi film we will cover on the new one. We were so glad <laughs> to find another one that we that will not be our finale. Well, so. the good news is we have we have found a way to to continue to talk about Nashi without uh, yeah. delving into the, the the ones that we really can't find an English language cut for or you know fan subversion of anywhere. Which is we invite people on yeah. and ask them about their sure. favorite Nashi films or the films that they want to talk about that involve Paul Nashi. And by mm. God, that's an endless stream of folks who are ready to come on and talk. So that's yep. a good thing. When we rejoin you here on The Bloody Pit, uh, we'll be returning to the uh, long line of 1940s universal horror films. And we get back to horror. Ain't no way around it. This is a horror film. Although, uh, how you feel about it is (laughs) up to you. And boy, do I have mixed emotions. Next up is The Mummy's Tomb. 60 minutes a full 30 of which you have already seen. <laughs> because a full <laughs> yeah. half of this damn movie was in the previous movie. Yeah. Uh, people, I love mummy movies. Yes, we know. And yeah. I got to tell you, I got things to say that are not kind about <laughs> the mummy's tomb. We'll get to it. That's, uh, anyway. So over here, we'll talk about the mummy's tomb the next time. And hey, I may join Troy on the side of the devil's Pit throwing throwing pitchforks at this mother, but we'll find out. We now, might actually we? hear some mummy bashing for once from Rod. So <laughs> you're, you're going to definitely find a boy. How much did they actually spend on this kind of commentary coming from yeah. me in a in a verbal stream that may involve profanities? But we'll probably uh, do what we've been doing with some of these lately, where maybe we'll throw out the question ahead of time to get other people's feedback on it too. I think it's maybe a good idea. Good idea. I like that. I think it yeah. kind of works with yeah. give some people some chance to defend this film. So. Well, I mean, I'm not going to be totally... Yeah. I'm not going to be ripping it to hell, but yeah. I am going to express my disappointment. Let's yeah. put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> well, the money's not smashing some heads. It's not worth watching. Well, yeah, that's just it. Until you, until you get to Nashy smashing well, heads as a mummy, exactly, it's like, yeah. come on. Until you get to head crushing <laughs> mummy, what is the point? <laughs> anyway, once again, thank you to everyone who's been listening. Thank you for uh, telling anybody that you think would be interested about the show. That's always great. Thank you for voting for us for the Rondos. Mm-hmm. That would be sweet as well. Thank you, Beth, for joining us. Thank Beth, you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad fun. you decided to, to, to tag along. I'm glad that you were happy to do this. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. I'm Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. I'm Beth. <laughs> and we'll all talk to you later. <laughs>